Hello, and welcome to episode 129 of the Dial-Up Movie Club. I'm your host, Matthew, and with me this week, in this very spooky episode, because guess what? Tomorrow's Halloween, everyone. I hope everyone's ready for some tricks, some treats, and uh, I have a guest with me today, bringing me one of my favorite horror movies of all time. I'm going to answer the question right now. It absolutely does belong in the Horror Hall of Fame. And this week, we have the star of Arrow Canary, the man bringing you the great age of sail. This is one of my great friends returning on the show, Mr. Adam Corenman. Adam, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. It is the spooky season, everybody. And honestly... Who could crave anything more? It's it's everything you want in a holiday. It's everything you want in life. You get to dress up, you get to eat candy, and you get to be scared sort of safely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Halloween is, um, there's always that debate of like Halloween or Christmas, which kicks it off for me. But when I'm in October, I'm in it. When I'm in December, I'm like, it's it's joyful. Sure, but I don't feel that punch until Christmas Eve. October? I feel October coming September 1st. Like, that's... Mm. I've always said we need to get rid of September and make October a 61-month day. I, or a 61-day month. Um, I'd be fine with that. Yeah, I'd I'll be fine with position. that. Look, let's, let's be honest. There are a lot of months that we could probably do without. I would say... Living in Los Angeles, uh, October is a strange month because you have this thing. The seasons in L.A. are chaotic and <laughs> have, you know, a, a really weird start to the summer. You have May gray, June gloom, and then this this period of, I don't know, being on the sun. And then, <laughs> oh, we made it. It's, it's the fall times now. Don't get too comfortable, kiddos. Because in October, you get this sudden... Trick or treat. Hey, it's me, heat. And all of a sudden, it's 100 degrees again for two weeks. And then the day or the day before Halloween, it just drops and it's 30 degrees. And that's what living <laughs> yeah. in the desert is like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got kind of the opposite thing here in Michigan, uh, the home of Sam Raimi. Uh, but it's just. We literally, we went from like 80 to 50 in a day, and we have not left 50 uh, since, and that's kind of October. I mean, last year, Michigan had a snowy Halloween and a green Christmas, which is very strange for Michigan. Uh, But you are the creator of the Great Age of Sale pirate musical, and I think I just, I some, you, it's uh, sorry, a underestimated thing in this industry is a good title. And sir, I think you nailed it. Because the si- the title sums it up. I hear the Great Age of Sale, I know what this is. But for those who might not be as uh, context-clue-wise as I, please tell everyone about the, the Great Age of Sale, this musical you're working on. 
Well, I mean, it's really kind of a pastiche of Death of a Salesman and uh, some yeah, Kafka. No, it's a pirate story, people. <laughs> um, I'm glad you like the title. That was actually that was a big hot topic of debate between myself and the producers because it's like, should we just call it Pirate Joe Goes for the Hose? I mean, what do you want to do with your pirate show? <laughs> By the way, that is not the story. We'll get to that. But it is a pirate show. And for those of you who remember a couple years back, sea shanties kind of swept the nation. Like there was that Scottish guy who uh, uh, who put out the Wellerman song and everyone was like, oh, wow, sea shanties rule. These are actually very fun songs. It's, it's kind of a story being told by a group of salty, drunken sailors. Awesome. Love it. But what, for me personally, sh- shanties remind me a lot of marching cadences. So for those of you who don't know me, I served in the army and part of the army is, hey, you got to go 15 miles that way. The only way to do it is on your feet. We, we left the car at home and <laughs> You just march for 15 miles with 100 pounds on your back, and it's miserable. But then somebody next to you starts humming a tune. Somebody else starts calling and responding, and it just takes away everything. And it's it's not just about sharing the misery. It's about getting you to walk step in step. It's about getting in line with everybody. And that's what sea shanties were. When you were on a ship, you needed to haul the lines in sequence, in rhythm, you needed to work in rhythm so that nobody would, you know, hit each other and get hurt or, or that you could, you know, draw the, the sheets faster and be able to make the ship move the way it was supposed to. It was it was a living, breathing thing, these ships. And that's why the Great Age of Sail was what it was. But beyond that, the Great Age of Sail gave us the Golden Age of Pirates. When you have literal homes floating all across the sea... That means there's a lot of wealth to be captured. And so, uh, I mean, there's a million books written about it. The book that I read when I was building this story uh, was The Republic of Pirates. Highly recommend. Uh, Also, I just recommend doing research on pirates because it's a great afternoon. But anyways, with all that said, I got sea shanty fever a couple years back. I wrote a shanty, but it didn't scratch the itch. So I kept writing songs, kept writing shanties, and all of a sudden I had a musical And it's about a young girl (laughs) who sets out on a journey of vengeance after her brother is lost at sea and she seeks out Blackbeard. But along the way, she also discovers herself. So it is actually a queer pirate musical. Awesome. Awesome. That's all. And you guys are currently fundraising for it, correct? We are. By the time you are listening to this episode, uh, the fundraising will have closed. Although, I mean, we will set up something if you want to donate more. I mean, uh, are you going to yeah. turn people down if they hand you money at this I, point? I have never turned down somebody who's like, do you want 50 bucks? <laughs> just give you 50 bucks real quick? Yeah, never yeah. happened to me. Um, but uh, right now we have, as of today, as of, uh, it is, it is I think, the 22nd right now, we've raised $17,000. Wow. We- Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. We need another seven. So I've got okay. I've got five days. So by the time you're listening to this, I'm either very happy or free, refiguring my life. But we need to raise <laughs> we need to raise another seven thousand dollars to get greenlit by the crowdfunding okay. site we're using. Um, and uh, so even if even if you listen to this, and you're like, oh, I really wish I could have donated. Hey, uh, don't find me. I'll take your money. It's totally fine. But the whole point of our fundraising was uh, we want to put on a full show. We want build sets. We want to hire a crew. We want to. I have a stunt coordinator who worked on Westworld and Pirates of the Caribbean. I have a dance choreographer who's worked on numerous television shows, uh, and I have an incredible team. We're casting right now, and the biggest thing that I want as a producer, as a director, as a writer, I want every single artist paid a living wage. That was the whole goal is nobody on this show works for free except for me. 
I can work for free because eventually, hopefully it makes enough money. I do make some money, but everybody who works gets paid. And that was a, that was a big push by all of us. That's what the, the crowdfunding is about. You're, you're helping make sure all of these artists get to pay their rent, get to feel like we are paid actors. We are paid performers. I mean, that's in this industry, that's huge. That changes your mm-hmm. perspective on the things you're doing. Like, I mean, Matt, you know, you, you write something, you put it out into the universe and there's a lot of times where it's just, okay, I made some art. I feel good about it, but mm-hmm. did it have value? And when someone yes. gives you any amount of money, it just explodes how much value you've created. Even if it's, even if it's minimal, I got paid yeah. 30 bucks to do a voice acting gig once. And I felt I was thrilled. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I got paid for that. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think especially with the hot strike summer we've had with mm. writers and actors, it's, it's more important now than ever for people to feel like, um, they can create art and also, you know, buy food. So, yeah, I mean, I know studios don't often agree with me on that point, uh, that people <laughs> deserve to eat and, you know, have a roof over their heads. But it's been really an incredible thing to see all these people band together and, and fighting for exactly what you guys uh, – and you guys didn't even need uh, picket signs outside your house to – you know, pay people <laughs> for their work. I have been, uh, I've been on the picket line since, uh, since WJ went. Uh, and now that WJ has signed uh, the new agreement, I'm still out there with all my SAG friends because it's, it's a, it's a fight for all of us. So mm-hmm. no, we don't win until everybody wins. Yep. Uh, and I think that's, that's a big part of just the solidarity of art. Like when you see an artist that you like, you should connect with them. You should reach out to them and you should do what you can to support them. If you are a fan of a TV show, watch the show. Watching a show, as weird as that is, that's a huge thing you can do. Make sure you watch it regularly. Make sure you watch it when it comes out uh, because Mm -hmm. those sorts of things do have a huge impact on the writers, the directors, the actors, everybody. Uh, If you're a fan of somebody's like online webcomic buy some merch off their store like there's little things you can do to support an artist that aren't here's ten thousand dollars make me yeah i was just i was just i mean if you (laughs) want to give ten thousand dollars to uh i don't know some movie podcast you listen to and look dialogue movie club is is starting a (laughs) patreon and there's only one tier and it's ten thousand dollars ten thousand dollars and you get uh more dial-up movie club you get just you, the normal episodes. You get all the bloopers. <laughs> yeah. Basically, it's just the episode uncut, so there's no music, very little editing. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's <laughs> just the raw form. It's dial up after dark, ladies and gentlemen. We're all gonna have fun with that. Oh uh, man! And uh, re- last time you were on the show, we had just announced Arrow Canary. Like uh-huh. I don't even think scripts were out yet or anything, and, and now we're here. Oh man, when was that? Was that like May? Uh, and so summer's that, gone that by. That must have been because that was we did D anD D, and that yeah, was we did way Dungeons back Dragons. Then. Yeah, um, and, and now it's October. Green uh, Arrow and Canary is here. How, how is this production gone for you? Ha- has it been fun to get back into the character now that it's not just talk about getting back into the character actually getting in the booth recording uh this uh crazy script that i've given you 
I mean, well, I, I'll start with we'll start with the back the back padding, um, the brown nosing, if you will. Uh, scripts are really good, and it's it's a hard universe to write a new story in. Like you know, when you're talking about comic books in general, but DC specifically, it is such a sad. It's it's eighty ninety years of these stories have been told. So how do you find some new way of getting into it? And what's nice is because some of these characters that you're introducing are relatively recent characters, or you've also been pulling from like golden silver age characters for like the, the, the teens you're building. And it allows you to say, okay, well, if these two had ever been in a room, what would that have been like? Mm-hmm. And what I, what I really like about your scripts, I have done a lot of like fan, fan ideas and fanfic and that sort of thing. And it often feels like people smashing uh, figures together. It just feels like, yeah. oh, it'd be really cool if the Hulk was like beating up on Tony Stark. It's like, what? <laughs> okay, cool, awesome. But but like, why? Why is it important? And I would really like that you actually started from the character. You, Everybody has a reason for the things they're doing. And never, every time I'm giving a line or, or Crystal's giving a line, there's a reason behind it that feels earned. And I think that's such a hard thing to do as a writer, uh, as, as a, a storyteller, and especially when you're playing in somebody else's sandbox. So brown nosing aside, it is so fun to be back in character. Playing as superhero rules, uh, I highly recommend it to any listeners. Uh, you know, Find yourself a way to put on some tights. There you go. Do you wear the tights in the booth? Oh, I mean, you gotta. Uh, I'm, I'm in <laughs> traditional um, like 1960s era uh, green arrow attire. So I've got the Peter Pan outfit. I was going to say, do you have the little hat? That's very yeah, important. It's Peter Pan by way of Robin hood, not the other way around, mm-hmm. which is weird. But look back then artists had to really, you know, the reason a lot of superheroes are wearing tights is because it's easier to draw tights than a bunch of mishmash gear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's true. Tights better than armor, I guess. But also, there was the whole thing where it was like based off circus characters. So I get it. I mean, I'm on board with yeah. it. And you know what? It's super comfortable in the booth. But if there you hear you like the material rubbing together, I did not spring to the expensive tights. <laughs> well, you should hear the latex maybe. that our uh, that our Batman wears. It's squeaking all the time. I got to edit all out. It's a, it's a oh, train wreck. But yeah, it, it was super interesting, like writing the script versus like hearing people say it like that mm-hmm. really it always puts it in perspective for me but more so arrow canary than um even nightwing or uh justice league mortal because this was 100 percent me going into it so and and there were these little quirks i didn't even kind of realize i was giving the characters until i heard them like i i heard like you and crystal's uh lines come in and i thought it was just the funniest thing how um <laughs> Arrow, he'll he'll like start standing up of like, hey, you don't do that, whatever. And Canero will be like, hey, calm down, calm down. We're gonna figure this out. And then someone will like poke at Black Canary, and she'll be like, oh, come on, bitch, let's go, let's go outside, let's handle this. <laughs> just like it's so funny to me. How it's just like a little character thing of how she's always so quick to calm Oliver, but then something happens to her, and she's just like on it. So it's just. It it puts into perspective actually hearing the words, and I am incredibly mm-hmm. thankful to you and the rest of the cast who are helping me put this whole thing together because I I hope people like it, and I thank everyone for uh, listening to it. Yeah, uh, um, yeah but, part of that is Crystal. Crystal is just brilliant to oh, work Crystal's with. Crystal's incredible. <laughs> She's great. She's absolutely great. Um, and now we got to go into a little game at Dial-Up we call 
agree to disagree, where I have some very controversial, some spooky-themed questions for you, if it were. And I'm going to count down three, two, one. You're just going to say whether you agree or disagree with it, and we're going to talk about it. we got a couple questions Ooh. here for you today. This is called Hashtag Adam Gets Cancelled. <laughs> Let's do it! All right. Here we go. Thriller by Michael Jackson is the best Halloween song. Three, <gasps> two, one. Disagree. Disagree? What Disagree. is it? I'm going to say the best Halloween song is the Monster Mash. Hey, club members, it's Matthew. Now, as many of you know, I'm getting married next year. And I want to fit into a tux and, most of all, look good in it for those photos. So I've been having to prioritize my own health a lot more. Eating healthier, getting rid of sodas, and walking more. And one of the biggest helps for me has been Liquid IV. Liquid IV is the category-winning hydration brand fueling your well-being. And the Hydration Multiplier is the one product you're missing in your daily routine. In just one stick, you get five essential vitamins and two times faster hydration than water alone. Use it first thing in the morning, before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. I love how it makes me feel after a workout. This stuff refreshes you. I love all the flavors, but let me tell you two of my favorites. One, the new strawberry lemonade flavor. Fantastic. And if I'm feeling a little more classic, I go with the pina colada. One stick of liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. There are 12 delicious, refreshing flavors to keep your hydration routine exciting, which contain five essential vitamins. B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C, with three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks. Made with premium ingredients, non-GMO, and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. Liquid IV partners with leading organizations for innovative solutions to help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code DIALUP at checkout. That's 20% off at anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code DIALUP at liquidiv.com. We had a discussion on the Monster Mash a couple weeks ago whether mm -hmm. some people think that song needs to be retired, put in the vault, and locked away. Ooh, all right. Um, well, I would disagree with them, too. See, the Monster Mash, <laughs> uh, a graveyard smash, uh, it, yes. is, it is iconic because of its timelessness. Um, yep. The Thriller Thriller is a great song. Look, look, Michael Jackson, there's a lot we could talk about with that. That's a whole other podcast. But Michael yeah. Jackson and the, and the songwriters and the producers and everyone who worked on those, that music of that era – it's a bop. It's so good. It gets in your ear and it lives there forever. Uh, and the music video was literally a national event. Like it, yeah. some of you who are, are listening to this a little bit younger. Literally there were, 
there were newspapers, there was uh, TV anchors that were talking about, hey, don't forget to tune into MTV tomorrow because Michael Jackson's new music video is coming out. It was a whole thing. They sold VHS of just the music video because the music video was turned into a short film with the song at the end. Like it was a whole experience. So it's an incredible song, but it is more, it's more about the Jackson era. It's more about the, the, the pop music, uh, sensation of it all. And it's, it's great. I mean, look, the dance is iconic. Everybody knows it, but I don't really say that that is the Halloween song. Cause if you go to any, any party, uh, you are going to hear the Monster Mash. The Monster Mash. Not because it is the most exciting song, not because it's the most memorable song, but because it is the one that is associated most with Halloween. Yeah. Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? That's all I got to say on that. <laughs> but I still love that people have said, look, the, the Monster Mash is not the Monster Mash. It's a song about the Monster Mash. And it always leaves you with that question of, so, um... What, uh, what's the actual song sound like? That's true. And then true. there have been a lot of internet musicians who've come up with what they think it is, and it's never there. It's one of those things <laughs> where, like, the mystery yeah. of it is more exciting than the reality of what it could be. Have you seen the one uh, music video they did of, like, the modern Monster Mash? And it's, like, the Saw movies come into it and, like, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> and then the guy, it's, like, Frankenstein singing it, and he's just horrified. <laughs> oh, my God. I have not. So, I have, TikTok has been feeding me a lot of people dressed in like monster makeup, dancing, mm-hmm. whatever is the new internet dance. Uh, and it's like, it's it's Freddy Krueger, which, I mean, look, I'm a Freddy Krueger stan, so I really am happy to see him back in the zeitgeist. But also, how do the kids today know who Freddy Krueger is? It's been <laughs> 20 years since his last movie. I mean, there was that awful remake. In 2011, I want to say, but you know, oh yeah, with Jackie Earl Haley. Oh, again, where it's like I love the cast, I love the actors. I just, it was honestly, it's not that it was a bad movie. I I always say this: there aren't really like bad movies, except for a very extreme version of like, oh man, you 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 failed at what you were trying to do. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I always say, if you're an artist and you're making something, you may make something bad. That's fine, but don't think of it as like bad. Think of it as it wasn't the best version of it, which is kind of a good segue of what we're going to be talking about today. But uh, uh, I think that that movie just failed to be what it should have been or what it could have been. And I don't blame the actors. I really don't blame the writer or the director. I think a lot of it was it needed more time in the oven. Like it just needed to cook more and and be iterated on to find why are we making a reboot of Freddy Krueger versus, hey, we've got this IP. Let's make it. Yeah, I'm honestly surprised we haven't seen another one in the past 10 years. I think that one hurt the IP enough that they're waiting, but horror is having such a moment right now. I'm yeah. so excited for it. Horror is probably going to save the mid-budget movie because you can make horror for such a low budget that it can compete with these $150 million monstrosities or these $300 million monstrosities. And that makes people go, oh, $60 million, $40 million, $30 million. That's a viable amount of money. You can make mm-hmm. 10 of those movies for the amount it costs for one Marvel movie. Okay, okay. And I'm hoping exactly. that's what we to get people doing. Yeah, we were talking about that last week with uh, Paranormal Activity. And just it was such an extremely cheap movie to make it. $15,000 budget, over $200 million yep. in return. It's just, that's the, that's why horror movies like, they're the safe bet 
kind of. That's why that's why a studio like Blumhouse succeeds. They're yeah. cheap, but surefire hits most of the time. Blumhouse but, and A twenty four. It's it's not just it's not just that it's a sure bet. It's it's probably a good chance you're going to make at least something because people like yeah. horror. People will see horror just because I want to see how gross it is. Or I want to see what the psychological twist is. So horror is always going to have an audience, which is great. But what what I love about studios like uh, like Blumhouse and A24 is that they will take a chance. Um, that that sh- uh, movie, Talk to Me. Uh, um, yeah, great movie. Like Malignant. Like all of these movies that will try something, or Megan, that will take a concept that is this far removed from an SNL skit. And they'll be like, no, 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 trust us, trust us, trust us. We're two YouTubers from Australia. Trust us, we have an idea. And those studios will be like, yeah, you know what? Here's here's a couple million dollars. Let's see what you got. Let's you know, yep. make make us proud. And that kind of confidence that you can give to artists will will be repaid to you in kind. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's. <clears throat> I know we're going off long on this one question uh, that was somehow thriller oh no this wait yeah, yeah this was still, still about monster Mash. this, this is still thriller but, but i think that's the thing too of like giving the money to the little guy is that person's gonna know how to spend it better you know someone mm-hmm. who's used to working with a hundred dollar budget you give them a million dollars and they're gonna really use it you know and i think evil dead is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like oh, you watch absolutely. this movie, you look at the budget, and there is not a penny wasted. I don't think every you see where the budget went in every shot of this thing, and yeah, there, right. there are a couple yeah. shots in Evil Dead that we'll talk about that are the money shots. They're like, oh my god, that's where everything went. But it's so worth it. There's if you're if you're ever interested about like all oh, for you listeners uh, interested in learning more about like how budgets can be such a a dangerous land a minefield to walk through as a director, especially an early director. Um, I, I believe it's one nine hundred hot dogs, which yes, very silly name. Uh, but it is it's former cracked writers who set up this podcast and uh, a comedy website, and they talk about John Carpenter making Escape from New York on a mm. budget of six million dollars, and yep. uh, he had to make a post apocalyptic movie on less than it takes to make like a rom-com. So yeah. the w- and and the fact is if you go over budget in even in that economy, uh if you go over budget as a director, first, second, third time doesn't matter, it really hurts your chances of getting more work. And John yeah. John made it work because John Carpenter is if you didn't know this, the man. He is the man. He is him as it were. All right. Got another statement right, let's get, for you. We got our questions. Let's go for it. We got our questions. This one, um, I hope I know the answer to it already, but we'll see. Green Arrow, way better than Hawkeye. Three, two, one. Agree. Just yeah. Come on. There we go. I mean, look. There we go. Hawkeye is, uh, he is a very fun, limited version of Inspector Gadget in that he just has a lot of fun gadgets, but is also just a dude. I like Hawkeye's general vibe. And I think that the MCU really did a great job of getting people to like the character. Although they took, you know, 25 movies and then a TV show to get people to care about the character. (laughs) But I mean, also Jeremy Renner did a great job with it in this most recent iteration. Uh, I think there are a lot of Hawkeye comic runs that were pretty iconic. Uh, The thing is, 
I can't remember them. That's the thing. His character has always been the other guy, the sidekick, which is, mm-hmm. it's a hard thing to say when the dude is presented as a hero. He's presented as, you know, an A-lister. Um, so, and I think a lot of people, uh, they, they, you know, they, they take the piss out of him. They, they, they don't see him as anything as bigger threat than just some dude with a bone arrow. Uh, giving him the gadgets was very fun. You take Green Arrow, uh, you take Oliver Queen, you take the Batman archetype, the billionaire orphan, semi-orphaned uh, in, in part one, and then later on in different iterations, loses both his parents, um, but loses everything, gets stranded on an island, has to be completely broken down and reborn into this superhero. And it's a much more interesting story. His origin automatically makes him a bigger character. Um, and I know most people will probably know Green Arrow from the CW show, which I thought mm-hmm. did a really great job with him. Um, you know, Stephen Mel, uh, for, for many of the things that uh, unfortunately can be said about him, uh, he also did a great job pulling off the character. Uh, the, the CW spawned, I think, one of the most successful runs DC has had in live action production movies included and and it's i think it's uh it's a testament to the character behind it i think that's something that as we talked about earlier you you don't care about the superpowers you care about the character superman mm-hmm. as a just archetype is boring as as people often complain superman is a boring thing it is a god it is untouchable there's nothing there's no threat so how do you make Superman interesting? Well, look at uh, Lewis and Superman. Look at My Adventures with Superman, the animated show. There's yep. a way to make those characters interesting, and it's by making them characters. Give mm-hmm. them the human wants and needs. Don't worry about the superpower part of it. And so that, that, to me, is the reason why you get Green Arrow being better than Hawkeye. This, the character behind all of it is just more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And... uh Hawkeye never seen him shoot one boxing glove arrow, not a single one. Which at that point, what are you even doing? Put down the. What bow, are we bro. doing here? Put the boxing glove on the arrow, and then that's all you had to do, Hawkeye. That's where you lost me. I all think right. that's, that's when you have bow and arrow. If you don't have gadgets on those arrows, come on, come on, man. Yeah, yeah. Go but, back to the uh, writing room and fix that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next question I got here. We got um. CGI peaked in 2014. Ooh. Three, two, one. I'll disagree. Okay. I'll, I'll come to you. Here's, here's what's happened. And I think there's been, there's been pages and pages written about this. The problem isn't so much the CGI. The problem is the filmmaking. Yes. Uh, and, and here's what it is. And uh, kiddos, take notes. If you're ever doing a CGI shot, you need to have a VFX supervisor. You need to ask them, how do I make this shot work? And then you need to do the thing they tell you to do. And you are going to get a shot that's going to blow your mind. I've seen somebody on a budget of uh, $10,000 make something that looks as good as a million-dollar shot. And it's just, I know what I can do with this amount of money. So light it like this. Shoot it like this. Block it like this. Put your characters here, here, and here. Have them look at this tennis ball. I will make it work. And if you just... Mm -hmm. If you plan that shot around the fact that it has to be like that, you are going to get some CGI that is going to blow your mind. Look at um, look at Jurassic Park. It's the the uh, the bellwether of you know the high end of what CGI was back in the day. And if you look at it, you're like, why do these shots still hold up? Part of it is because there's only six minutes of computer generated imagery 
in Jurassic Park in terms of fully created characters. There's obviously little touches here and there because a lot of that happens behind the scenes. But a lot mm-hmm. of it is practical. You know, they built a giant animatronic. They did puppetry. They had dudes in suits. But those CGI shots, they knew that was going to cost a lot of money. That was going to take a year of render time. So they had to make it one and done. We have to get this angle. We have to get this lighting because that's what's going to make this work. And they did. And that's why it lasts. That why, yeah. That's why the T-1000 still looks awesome. It's because they had limitations and they, they dealt with them. Yep. We're going to talk about Evil Dead, I swear, at some point in this podcast. And <laughs> a part of what makes Evil Dead stick as a Hall of Famer, at least in my opinion, is the fact that they had so little money that everything had to be meticulously planned out. Even the stuff I know Raimi and, and Campbell will tell you, oh, well, we, we improvised this, we improvised that. But the shots that you remember, those are planned so, so precisely. And I think a lot of what you hear about today why does CGI look bad? It's it's not the VFX artist. It's not the software. You can do incredible things with the software. It's that you get a director who's never worked with VFX before. And he comes and he's like, okay, uh, let's just shoot a couple angles and then uh, let's put the monster in there. And off in the corner, the VFX supervisor is pulling out their hair. <laughs> like, yeah. that's not how computers work. What are you mm-hmm. doing? That's the reason why when you watch a Godzilla movie, how the monsters just keep changing sizes. Uh, but then you watch... Guillermo del Toro's uh, Pacific Rim and it feels right the weight yeah. of it feels right and and there is still a little bit of warping on character sizes in that movie but overall you go back to that and you're gonna be like that felt real a part yeah. of it is just going into it with intent and then listening when the guy wearing the cargo shorts and the and the weird like goofy shirt says hey we can't make that shot work you need to do it differently go okay cool cool how do we make it work? Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It's it's not a matter of, like you said, the software being worse or anything. I think it's a degree of productions are just far more rushed these days than they were 10 years ago even. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's just, you have, I, I hate to always throw marvel under the bus because i love the mcu but you have the marvel machine of we have to keep pumping out content and content Mm -hmm. disney plus shows and movie theater experiences here it is here it is and in the shuffle you get she hulk and like you look back 10 years ago at like when the original avengers came out hulk looks phenomenal and but that movie it's given first of all it's a it's a movie budget versus tv show budget so that's understandable but it it's given it seems like there's a lot more time that could be spent because back then a marvel movie was coming out once a year as compared to now where we're getting six seven Mm -hmm. marvel projects a year so it's like in the crew as far as i know it hasn't really changed all that much size wise on the VFX side of things. You, it seems like that'd be obvious to be like, oh, we're pumping out more content. We should hire more VFX. But from the horror stories, I've heard about what it's like to work on shows like WandaVision and and uh, Cap- or, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It, it just sounds like it's not getting there no. and it needs to. <laughs> and a, a big part of it, I mean, like, again, there's been pages and pages written about this. VFX studios are underpaid. They're crunched. They're bid against each other. 
Um, a big part of it is uh, uh, like there was a, a studio, I can't want to say it was Life of Pi, which won an mm. Oscar for visual effects. But the studio that booked them just kept you know, holding off on payment, holding off on payment, holding off on payment. That studio, Oscar winning VFX studio went under because they never got the oh money for the amount of work they did. Um, but uh, again, that's a great example of a movie where they had a limited budget, but they had a VFX team that's like, this is how we can pull this off. If you just listen yep. to us, we will pull it off. And that's what they did. Uh, to say that, uh, and to kind of come back to the question of it, um, VFX doesn't look worse. It looks rushed. Um, so, for example, uh, uh, back to 1996, you've got this one shot. T-Rex is going to rip through the fence and then roar. Cool. Yeah. That is one shot. It takes 10 seconds. That 10 seconds is going to take us six months to build and work. Cool. I have a team of 10 people. Awesome. That's one shot of 10 seconds. Now go to Avengers Endgame. I I had, or uh, I had, Disney had to hire dozens of VFX studios because there's 2,500 shots. And the, and the problem isn't just that there are 2,500 shots. It's that they have to be modular. They have to be able to go, okay, well, in China, this scene's not going to play. So we actually have to pull that out. But because we do that, this VFX needs to change to this. And now it's not 2,500 shots. Now it's 3,000 shots because we have mm-hmm. to do this version for this market, this version for this market. And you're paying these VFX teams so little. And it now takes that six-month timeline was for one shot. Even if we've compressed that down to one month, okay, cool. There's 3,000 shots. How do you want to get this movie out on time? And that's yeah. the problem. That's what's. That's why you get scenes like uh, like Thor 4 where that kid's head just kind of floats. Like, <laughs> yeah. What the hell is this shot? Or look, I mean, She-Hulk, yeah. She-Hulk had a lot that was like building up to it. And it, yeah, it's, it's easy to say it's movie budget versus TV budget, but it's also a TV director who's like, okay, well, what? but then, then she'll She-Hulk out and the VFX supervisor in the corner saying, yes, but you're moving the camera and I mm-hmm. have not done anything to track it. So I can't build you a 3D character that moves with you. You understand that. And the director goes, yeah, but I mean, like, it's 3D. You can just rotate it. And it's like, that's not that's not what's <laughs> happening, though. You need to understand yeah. that when the camera moves, that lens is looking at the subject differently. And now mm-hmm. the background is going to be different. The lighting is different. I have not built you a model to do that. I don't have a 3D camera attached to your camera right now. That was actually something people, uh, the wrong lesson learned from Aven- uh, not Avengers, Avatar. James Cameron spent, what, 14 years developing the technology to then make Avatar. And then he developed a whole other set of technology to make Avatar 2. Say what you will about the films themselves. They look gorgeous because it took so long to figure out how do we actually do this. And that's the thing is people, when, when you said it before, people think of it as content. But it's not. Movies, TV shows, all of it is supposed to be art. It's supposed to be an artist telling a story. So when you think of it as just content, you're thinking of it in the same way as those those fitness influencers who just walk down the grocery stores going, man, I don't, this got dextrose maldextrin, <laughs> not for me. And then he takes off his shirt and you're like, this is an Albertsons. Don't do that, sir. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, I, I'm not going to linger too much longer on the question of this <laughs> thing. And this is on that Sam Raimi, director of Evil Dead, said when working on uh, the Spider-Man films. And this is something I've always loved when it comes to VFX work. Is he said if he ever had one shot that felt 
particularly fake, like VFX-wise. These was early 2000s, but not where we're at today. So if, if Green Goblin looked particularly fake in one shot, he'd make the next shot look in or be entirely practical to bring. So the audience, if they were ever getting lost, they'd bring him right back in. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I know Willem Dafoe looked a little weird there, but boom, here's his face and we're back. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the situation with over-reliance on CGI now. Mm-hmm. Of we're not getting that shot to pull people back in. Yes, it, 100%. Yeah. And I look, Sam Raimi, if, if you are a, a filmmaker or a TV show uh, you know, director, artist, anything, and you want to learn somebody who, who kind of came up in the revolution of visual effects and special effects, watch Sam Raimi movies. Watch, watch Evil Dead all the way through the Spider-Man trilogy, all the way through to Doctor Strange. Like, watch every, watch Quick and the Dead. Like, watch what he learned as he was coming up as a filmmaker, and it will teach you so much about how you plan a shot and how you get an audience to go with you on fantastic journeys. Yep. Agreed. Last question for agree or disagree. This should be probably not as long. (laughs) We'll see. We haven't had luck yet. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Uh, this one is just simply, uh, you're never too old to dress up for Halloween. Three, two, Agreed. one. hundred percent. That I was like, immediately agree. Look, I, I get into this conversation with my wife a lot and it's like, she goes, oh, it's Halloween. I don't really need to get dressed up. And I go, I understand that's your perspective, but it's Halloween. I need to get dressed up. Um, I, I have a lot, I know a lot of people are like, Oh, when you're an adult, you shouldn't do Halloween anymore. That is the wrongest answer. When you're an adult is when you really need Halloween. It's when you need that chance to get away from everything else in your life and get to play. Play is such, we talked about this on the D and D episode. Play is such yep. an important part of your life. If you don't play, and I don't mean just, just sitting in front of a, a, a computer playing video games or, or a PlayStation or an Xbox, whatever play. Get get with your friends and get goofy, get silly. That's a huge part of human interaction, of, of human, uh, the way we relieve stress. We relieve stress, I have no science to back this up, but it feels sometimes <laughs> like you relieve stress better when you're doing it in a fun, goofy social setting, when you can let down the masks that we put on every day of you know the societal norms and you get to dress up and play Monster Man or your Wednesday Adams and you're doing the weird dance, whatever. When you get to just not be yourself for a little bit, it's such a stress relief and it's so good for you. So Halloween, I think, is really important. Keep dressing up. Be silly. Even if you're just throwing a sheet over yourself and being a spooky ghost. Yeah, I agree. I'm not even going to I'm not even going to extrapolate on that because we have a movie to talk about. (laughs) No, no, no. We have to talk about the Deadites. The Deadites. Damn it. So. I, I hadn't seen Evil Dead, the original Evil Dead, in a long time. Um, I'd seen Evil Dead 2. I'd seen Army of Darkness. And obviously, Ash vs. Evil Dead. Uh, I'd seen the remakes. Uh, or the uh, I don't know if they're remakes or reboot cools at this point, because they do kind of yeah, tie right. into things. It's um, kind of weird. Yeah. But I, I have really enjoyed every single Evil Dead. I think uh, there was somebody else. I can't remember who. Somebody said that it is one of the few franchises. Where there's not really a bad movie out of it there are some movies that maybe don't hit you as hard as the other ones or maybe there's moments you're like oh that was that wasn't quite as fun but i don't think any of them are bad and that is a testament to a franchise now sam raimi has only been in like behind the camera on on some of them but my goodness do you feel him in everything and that's that's sam raimi like we could this could be the sam raimi show for an hour it's it's such an incredible look at um 
and a filmmaker who is at the very beginning of what is about to be an incredible iconic career and to get to see especially uh, to get to see him learning and, and we'll talk about like the budget was it was pocket change it was insane how little they did this for um and the effects that they were able to get and the way, places they put the money the places they invented and pioneered filmmaking techniques it's it's mind-boggling you sometimes forget that a shot came from this director you forget that you know the most iconic horror move came from these movies um, and I, I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. It absolutely deserves to be on the hall of fame because of that. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, the Sam Raimi show, that might be a good rebrand for dialogue movie club. Now we could just, yeah, we could do a whole summer of Sam. Like you could just, could, oh my gosh, I'd love to. Let's go. Do, do the dark man I episode. Mean, when do dark man do quick in the dead. Quick in the dead is one of those movies that I saw and it just immediately, like this is one of my favorite Westerns. You watch the original because it is, it is a remake, but uh, the original is super fun. I mean, again, Westerns are awesome. There's, there's really nothing yeah. wrong with them. And then Sam Raimi comes on. and is like, I'm going to take my horror making skills and I'm going to make a Western that is an, an adventure with horror in the weirdest places. And it's brilliant. It's so good. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Uh, before we get too far into it, we got to play our IMDb game. Ooh. And IMDb is a website where users can go and rate a movie on scale 1 to 10. The website then compiles all the uh, reviews and gives us a nice number with the decimal point included. Adam, I'm going to give you a fake IMDb score, and you're going to have to guess the over or under on what the actual one is. Okay. So, the score I'm going to give you for The Evil Dead is a 7.3. Is IMDb, because I know Metacritic, it's it's an aggregate of criticisms versus uh, uh, user reviews. Does IMDb, it's all I believe this reviews? is 100% user reviews, and The Evil Dead has 227,000 <laughs> okay. uh, reviews. I'm going to say, I'll take the over. I think it is more than what you said. Based on you would be correct, it is a 7.4. So, Adam, you get to go ahead first with your initial thoughts when you first saw The Evil Dead and just your overall thoughts about it. Ooh, so I'm gonna take y'all back, get in the way back machine with me, kiddos. Um, Let's go. I was of the Blockbuster era, and for those of you who don't know what the heck that is, except out of memes, Blockbuster was a store that we would go to in order to rent movies that were physical cassettes, you know, about the size of like a Lunchable, except it was full of memories. And so we would go to the store every every Saturday night. So I was, I was raised in a Jewish household. Friday night is Shabbat, so you can't watch TV or anything like that. Saturday night, Shabbat ends. We would go to the store, rent a movie, come back, eat pizza, and watch a movie. That was a family tradition. So nice. we went to the store, and my dad's like, oh, let's get – I can't remember what movie. Probably English Patient or something like that. Something adult <laughs> that was boring. And I saw a dude with a chainsaw in one hand and a shotgun in the other being surrounded by monsters and his leg hugged by by a, 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 a bonnie lass. And I'm like, oh, dang. I need to know everything about this movie. And that was Army of Darkness. Technically, Evil Dead 3. I got it. It was my favorite movie ever. I've, I've never... That was probably one of the first times I watched a movie and I'm like, this is my favorite movie. Like, I'm going to watch this a thousand times. You're, you're allowed to rent the movie for, I think, a week at that time. I watched it every single day multiple times. 
for a week. And then, uh, and then we re-rented it immediately. I hand it back in and I'm like, don't, don't actually hold on to it though. Give it back to me. Here's my, here's my membership card. I'm renting it again. Another week did the same thing. It was my favorite movie. And then my brother goes, Oh, that's actually the third one. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, there's, there's an evil dead and an evil dead too. And I'm like, shut your face, get, get the car keys. Let's go. I, I, I can't drive yet. Take me to the store and let me watch those. Um, and so we, I watched Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two, and I was, I was stuck. I was lost in it. It was incredible. Um, there are things that I forgot, because Evil Dead One and Evil Dead Two. For those of you who don't know, there's, um, I think it was a rights issue. They didn't yeah. technically have the rights to some of the characters or the story. So Sam Raimi essentially rebooted his own story to get the control again. Um, so that's why there, it, it's it's a little bit of a, a mirror of the madness. Things are different in the second one than they are in the first one, but it's also a sequel. So it's, it's got so many things going on. Normally you'd say that's going to be a hot mess. It's not going to work. Oh my God. It's incredible. But let's, let's go all the way back to just evil dead one army of darkness is a comedy with some horror elements. Evil dead one is a horror show. It is a cabin in the woods story, but with, comedy in the strangest places and also the gore the violence of it like it's not about scaring the audience because ah something spooky is coming out it's about scaring you because you you immediately like these characters they are relatable they're they're not doing anything bad and then evil in the world tortures them it is i think one of the it tiptoes on the line of torture porn but because it is a supernatural element that is affecting them, I think it gets away with it in a way that movies like Saw or Hostel don't. Like, I don't tend to vibe as much with those as I do with something like this, where it feels like good versus evil. And I think that's what makes mm-hmm. the Evil Dead series last longer, that it makes it more, more comfortable to sit through, even as your skin is crawling with some of the horrible things that happens to these people. Uh, and it's, yeah. uh, I, it's a brilliant, brilliant movie with... There is a very specific scene that I know has aged tragically poor, um, but it's also it's a hard scene to not do, which is why in the reboots they do versions of that scene just in a different way that gives it a. I think there's one shot that makes the connotation really rough, whereas in the newer versions they don't have that shot, and that makes it better. So we'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah, yeah, of course. That scene uh it can't be skipped over. And one one of my favorite fun facts about Army of Darkness, which is just the fact that it could have had the greatest movie title ever. Not that Army of Darkness isn't great, but do you know what the original title for that movie was? Ooh, uh I want like Ash versus the Deadites or what what was it gonna be? Medieval Dead. Oh! Isn't that perfect? Isn't that oh, perfect? That's the perfect name. Medieval God. Dead. That's so good. <laughs> yes, it's perfect. And it pisses me off that it's not that. Like, Army of Darkness <laughs> is a fun title, but it doesn't let you know that this is Evil Dead. It's like yeah. Medieval Dead would have also opened up the doors for pun titles for the rest of the franchise. Which exactly. would have been great. Yeah. Uh, Carnival Dead. That could have like Carnival give me Ash at the circus. Let's Evil Knievel Dead doing stunt work. Evil Knievel Dead. Yeah, but um, 
Evil Dead initial thoughts, Matthew Dawson. Um, yeah, I I had first seen. I, I'm a huge Sam Raimi fan. I, I mean, we've established this uh, many a times on this show, but that was mainly the Spider-Man trilogy. Growing up, watching those movies on repeat. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older where I was like, you know what? Sam Raimi, he uh, he made other movies and I could watch those. And so I just started looking through and I was looking at like the highest rated ones. And like at the top of the list was always um, Evil Dead 2. And I was like, that's and I've always known of like Ash Williams and uh, kind of the general concept of the cabin in the woods story. So I went and uh, watched Evil Dead 2, and I loved it. Like, I legit think that's one of the greatest movies ever made. And and then people had always told me, like, you don't really have to watch Evil Dead, the original, because Evil Dead 2 kind of sums it up and then does its own thing. And, and so I had watched Evil Dead 2, and then I watched Army of Darkness, should have been the medieval dead, but whatever. Um, and then eventually went back to watch the original. And I think from doing that, I was very much, I don't want to say underwhelmed by the original when I first watched it, but it's not evil dead Two. Mm-hmm. I think evil dead two does everything. This movie does better. And, um, and, and it just left me feeling kind of disappointed by the original which maybe i should watch the original first maybe that's on me but then coming back to this years later and and then like obviously i was hooked as hooked as you are on the evil dead franchise watch the ash versus evil dead the new ones that came out um and so uh, yeah and now coming back years later to this original one i like it a lot more now. I still, I don't think it's at Evil Dead 2 level, but I do think I gave it a bad rap on my first watch just because I was like, well, the same movie kind of exists, but better somewhere else. But now I can really appreciate that this is, in my opinion, one of the greatest directorial debuts of all time. Like you said, Sam Raimi, his camera work is the star of the show more than even Bruce Campbell, like on par with the visual effects. I think just though, and it's one of the most uh, interesting productions to look at research wise. I had a ball researching for this movie because it, it seems like one of the sets I would least like to be on. It sounds like it was just a horrible experience to make this movie, but I so much just feel the passion everyone had for it. Just the the stories of um, Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell meeting in high school and really bonding over their love of like horror movies and comic books and then going out of high school, making these short films that eventually um, get this budget and funding which by the way the people that threw money at this project are still getting paid royalties Mm -hmm. to this day people that funded the evil dead so um people who might want to fund the gray age of sale i'm just saying long-term investments long-term investments i I don't know i don't work for a financial uh backer agency but i'm just saying i'm just saying if you want to maybe seems like the thing to do yeah seems like thing to do so 
The Evil Dead, I think I appreciate it a lot more than I used to. But I still... I just... I don't... It's tough because I love this movie, but it's just that Evil Dead 2 exists, which I think kind of retroactively makes this movie worse. So it's kind of a weird balance. And I always think Evil Dead 2 found the perfect balance of horror and comedy, where the first Evil Dead really leans in on the horror, and Army of Darkness really leans in on the comedy. And I think Evil an Evil Dead movie really needs to strike both. And and I think um, the later reboot quills really lean horror-wise as well. And that's why uh, that 2013 remake does not gel with me. Mm-hmm. But that, what you said earlier, I do 100% think that this series is the most consistently good horror series ever. You get movies like Halloween that has like, or franchises like Halloween, which has like one, two, two movies at best that are good. And then the rest is just crap. You get Nightmare on Elm Street, one or two movies good, the rest crap. All these horror franchises, it's so rare to even hit three good movies. I would argue there is not a bad Evil Dead movie. You know what I, I think, think it they, is? Yeah. Like, so you, you talk about like Halloween. You talk about uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Think about any uh, – what do they call it? They call it the flanderization problem. And it's the idea that yep. as you take characters along in a story, you have to continually like up the ante of what makes them them, which is why when you, when you look at the pilot episode of a sitcom, How I Met Your Mother, Friends, Frasier, whatever – and then you look at the very last episode, it's cartoon. It's so yep. far removed from the characters, the nuance that they were playing before, because in order to keep the audience interested, you have to keep taking them further, 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 further. Ned Flanders started as a fun, nice neighbor, a nerd. And by the end, his Christianity was his entire, you know, character. It was, it, yep. it, he, he was nice to a fault. He was this weird, like macabre kind of a character not what he was at the very beginning of his arc. So horror, the problem is, uh, uh, what you'll often get is it starts grounded with this absurdity that is terrifying. But as you have to keep pushing the boundaries and you have to keep taking it further and further, that absurdity starts to just get cartoonish. Uh, Freddy, mm-hmm. Freddy leaned into it in the latter parts of the, the original run of the series, but like, Freddy 4, Freddy 5, they didn't know what the heck they were doing. And it, it you could tell. Like, it started to feel like, wait, is this is this a comedy? Is this supposed to be scary? I don't get it yet. And then Freddy 6 comes around. And it's like, oh, we're wearing 3D glasses. I get it. This is camp yeah. now. That's fine. Yeah. Um, same thing. Uh, Jason. Jason was like, well, what are we doing? What's going on? Are we, we we're taking Manhattan now? And it's like, okay, <laughs> no, we're going to space. I get it. It's camp. But there is that period of failing. Jaws is a huge example. Two Jaws. One. Brilliant. Perfect. Incredible. And then it's like, okay, we get it. A shark was scary. You can't keep telling that story, though. It gets boring. What Mm -hmm. I think Evil Dead did, Evil Dead starts at an 11 and then is like, it's fine if we go further. Like, because this is already so weird and absurd, you'll just keep going with us. And I think Bruce Campbell is a huge part of it, too. Because Bruce Campbell is, he's leading man handsome except he's just, he's got that little bit of a twist to him where you're like, but he still feels like a regular dude. He doesn't look as chiseled as 
like a Tom Cruise. And, and, and it's, it's the almost, it's the cartoonist chin is a big part of it, but it's his facial expressions. It is his, it's the kabuki nature of his performance. It just takes you to a place where you're like, okay, keep going. I'm on board. Cut off your hand with a chainsaw. Fuck yeah. I'm on board. Let's do this. (laughs) And And I think when you're talking about evil dead one, not quite being there, I think that was a big part of it. It was still in the zone of we're going to make a horror movie. And so there's funny moments. And, and Bruce Campbell does get these really, oh, he gets some some real moments in this in this movie where he has to be, I'm burying my girlfriend. I just bought her this thing. There's the <laughs> implication that the next box is going to have a ring in it. Like it's, it's really what his sister is with them, kind of playing fifth wheel. That's a whole other thing we could talk about. And And in the end, he's like, no, no, I... I have to bury her. I can't. I can't mutilate my my girlfriend. Oh, I have to cut off her head. Yeah. The, and the other part of it is, we're going to torture our main character. This isn't a. He gets a bump on the shoulder. He gets you know a flesh wound. Uh, Bruce Campbell gets tortured. Not not the actor. Uh, not the character. By the way, Bruce Campbell, the actor, gets yeah. tortured in the making of this movie. And it's and it takes you for a journey. It makes it so that when the next movie, when it happens again, and then in the next movie, it happens again. You're just like. I, I can't wait to see how he gets out of this one or yeah. if he gets out of this one. Cause you're never really sure. Yeah. You, you know, Bruce Campbell sprained his ankle very early into production on this thing. And instead of, you know, like halting production, laying him recover, Sam Raimi adds a scene where the deadite scratches his ankle up a bunch. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that he's limping. Yep. That's what Bruce Campbell goes through. In this. And that's ingenuity. And, that's how, you know, yeah. you've got a good director. I, um, I broke my ankle in college the day before we were shooting a film and, uh, and we had rehearsed, we had everything worked out. And then I showed up to set on crutches and the director just stares at me for a minute. And I'm like, we can make this work. Trust me. <laughs> I've seen evil dead. And so yeah, 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 yeah. the first thing we shot was me falling down a set of stairs. There you go. Which, by the way, Perfect. I did not get paid any stunt bump for that. I should have, but it was a student film. So I got paid $0 regardless. Perfect. Perfect. And I also want to disclaim, maybe don't fall down a flight of stairs if you just broke your ankle, Adam. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, were you never 18 and invincible? <laughs> no, I'm an adult. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm an adult and I woke up wrong and my neck hurts, okay? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I think what you were saying about those other franchises as compared to Evil Dead, I would also add that Friday the 13th, those movies were getting pumped out like every yes. year or two. Evil Dead, between one and two, I believe is six years. Mm-hmm. And then Army of Darkness, I believe, is another six years. And then oh, 20 years to the reboot. And it's just these movies never felt like they were cash grabs because they weren't being pumped out. When I met um, Tobin Bell, mm-hmm. uh, who plays Saw, uh, Jigsaw, whatever, um, the first thing I asked him was, did this feel rushed? Did the Saw movies feel very rushed in production? Because there was a point where the slogan was, if it's Halloween, it's Saw. Mm-hmm. Because every single Halloween, a new Saw was coming out throughout the 2000s. And he said, it did, but it was steady work. And that's what like actors love. So he didn't mind. And But you see in the movie's quality after maybe saw three 
that those movies take a slight hit. And I've always joked that no movie regrets killing off its main character more than Saw 3, because now there are 10 more Saw sequels where every time it's just, well, John Kramer actually did this right before he died and then mm-hmm. this and whatever. So, um, yeah, and that's what makes Evil Dead stand out is just it never feels like they none of not single movie in that franchise feels like it was made as just a quick hey we have this brand let's pump another one out i was just talking about the hellraiser movies last episode on how those movies after a certain point they were legit only made so the guy that made them could hold on to the rights that's there's a lot of, only a lot reason of they were like that. Like anytime you yeah. see somebody make a, a Robin Hood movie or uh, Sony used to do this. Sony would, would put out uh, a new thing just because they, they owned that particular property. I think yep. it's part of the reason why they did the amazing Spider-Man with Garfield is like we have to keep the rights. Otherwise, it reverts back to Marvel. And yep. um, and I mean, look, we can we could nostalgia bury those films as much as we want. They just weren't they weren't as well constructed as the characters deserve, or really as the artists deserve. Uh, and I mean, we're definitely going to talk about, like, you could look at Marvel in the same way, Disney and Marvel and Star Wars. It has been too much to the point of it. It's, it goes back to that original thing we were talking about. It's not art anymore. It's content. It's just yeah. something so that you will turn on the TV. And to me, that is such a, a it spits in the face of, of the original creators. Clive Barker created horrific, like uh, a Lovecraftian universes. Bar- like Clive, Clive Barker is one of the icons of horror in the way that Stephen King is because yep. of the, of the horrific worlds he could envision and to take it and to make it into something that's so, so comical really does it a disservice. And Pinhead, such a really fun character, the, the, the uh, Cenobite, such a fun, you know, exploration of hell and pain. It's, like this new, the newest version, the reboot of Hellraiser that just came out on mm-hmm. um, on Hulu or whatever. Yep. I was really disappointed, but there were still those those glimpses, those glimpses of yep. the artist, the director, or the writer getting together and be like, "I've got this one scene, and it's worth it." Even if the rest of the movie isn't, this scene is worth it. And I love, I love moments like that. That's to me, that's what Evil Dead One really is. It is, it is a an artist. You say it's one of the best directorial debuts, but it's also an artist discovering something and knowing yep. this shot is important this shot is important there's a lot of there's a lot of fluff in uh in evil dead one and it's under 90 minutes by the way but it's uh there's a lot of scenes where you're like there's a different way they could have done this or there's this when you see evil dead 2 you look at oh sam learned the lesson he learned yep. what he should have done the first time and then he then he did it and that makes the movie so much better um instead of Oh, Ash is going to be really sad that his girlfriend died and he's going to be too overcome with grief. He's going to bury her and then get into a fight. Oh, no, his girlfriend's dead head is going to speak to him and he's going to scream into the night as he cuts her head in half with a chainsaw. That's so much better as a horror movie. (laughs) Also, again, deeply disturbing just to speak it out loud. But it's something that like the director, you know, you'd watch audiences watch your film and go, oh, that moment could have been bigger. I should have done something bigger. I hope I get a chance to do that. And then, oh, you get a chance. And you love to see it. And that's I think that's the thing about Sam Raimi. He learned so much from just Evil Dead 1 to Evil Dead 2 that everything after seems like it's had that same amount of iteration. Army of Darkness has shots where you're like, 
I don't have an improvement. You knocked it out. That was that was yep. the the I shatter a mirror because it's making faces at me, and then my miniature reflections hop out and attack <laughs> me. Gulliver's Islands or Gulliver's travel style, like yep. brilliant, insanely brilliant. And uh, I I do think it is time for us to talk about the scene. I mean, look, there's a lot of iconic scenes in Evil Dead One. But the one a lot of people come back to is the uh, the tree assault, we'll call it, to be nice and uh, comfortable sure. euphemisms here. Uh, if assault is a word you want to use it is, to It is a this. hard R scene, and it is a content warning for anybody who, you know, sexual assault kind of a thing. Um, it is not not to say that dismissively, just to say there's, you should have a content warning if you're if you're going to talk about it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it it is an iconic scene in the fact that it is – it is using the metaphor of sexual assault in the sense that evil gets into you because evil wants to. And mm. that, is, that is a horrifying thing. And I think a lot of horror does play with with sexual uh, overtones and also violent sexual overtones. Alien is very much a metaphor for sexual assault. Uh, it, it's one of the reasons it is so visceral on a human level. Um, but... But I think Evil Dead, that particular style of approaching it, there's one real shot that makes it go from this is kind of like just pushing the edge to, for me at least, Mm -hmm. it goes that little bit step too far. And I think that that makes that scene not age well. And it's it's the branches pulling the legs apart. And at that moment, it's like this is – it's too human of this moment. And it takes it away from it being – evil is coming for this girl to a male evil. And like, then you start to remember there's camera people there and it, it just makes that moment not quite land as well for me. And in future iterations of evil dead, they've done a version of this where they don't have specific parts of that happen. You still have like evil is coming for this girl in kind of a, a sexually aggressive way, especially in the 2013 remake and the, uh, the sequel afterwards, there is, scenes of of women being attacked by this thing but it doesn't come across the same way and i think Mm -hmm. that learning the nuance of that kind of horrific scene is incredibly difficult i know that sam has kind of shied away from doing stuff like that in his film since because he knew like the lesson he learned from it is i don't know if i have the the light touch to do that and i think that that's Mm -hmm. something that as as an artist you sometimes you're going to go too far and that's art can push boundaries, but it's also okay to say, I don't know if I know how to do this right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out a different way, and I'm gonna find a way to mm-hmm. tell this story without potentially putting anybody in an, in like the wrong state of fear. Yeah, yeah, I'm very torn on the scene. I because on one hand, it has a purpose and it's to shock the audience, and it works 100. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. percent It works. And, but on the other hand, I do kind of see what you're saying. And I have a different shot where I think that it goes a little too far. And that's the shot where the vine kind of like cups the breasts. And that's where I'm like, okay, we've gone from like scary to trying to make this kind of sexy. It's it's that borderline titillating. And it's like, but that's not, is that what you want people to be feeling right now? And that's that's the thing. Yeah, and and that's the problem with it because I'm glad you brought up Alien because I was really thinking about this scene in my head earlier and I was like, well, how is this different from the facehugger scene in Alien? Because that and and that scene is fantastic, 
but I think the difference is you don't you don't see the face hugger scene as assault until you really think about it until yes. later implications of the impregnation and then the chest burster coming out in later scenes. But this movie, it it's really, it's right there. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it doesn't even let you kind of think about it. It's just like, this is what it is. And um, I know Sam Raimi has gone on to say that he regrets putting this in the movie, filming it at all. And I think what he said about it, I really agreed. And I watched this interview where he said, like, as a director on that movie, my job was I really wanted to shock and entertain the audience. And I never meant to offend anyone with it. And but now that I see that I've offended people with it, I realize that, like, that's bad. (laughs) Like, that scene is bad and I wish I didn't do it. And I think that just is a good testament to forgiveness that I think society has really lost recently. And this is something I've said on the show before. I think like cancel culture is so harmful because if the evil dead came out now, Raimi would never get another job. We'd never get Spider-Man because he'd be canceled. We never let him have another chance at this, but I think allowing a person to grow and saying like, Hey, I get it. That was wrong. I'm not going to do it again. And like, not even just saying, cause you can tell a heartfelt apology from a fake one and being like, like my PR team told me that the <laughs> tree assault was bad. So I'm going to say it was bad versus uh, Sam feels very genuine of like, Hey, I was young. I was right out of high school and, and like, you know, everyone's been the edgy teenager. Mm. That's like, we're going to make And a lot of this movie is like edgy, gratuitous gore. Mm. And this fits right in with it. But, um, yeah, I just, I'm very torn on the scene still because it works as a horrifying scene, but it, it just it is weirdly tone wise. It, it's a weird tone thing for me. And I think there's, there's, Three things I'll touch on because you brought up some yeah. amazing points here. Um, the face hugger, I think a big part of the face hugger is that you don't really see what's happening. You get yeah, it's not sucked, sexy. <laughs> it wraps around his throat, it covers mm-hmm. his face, and then he falls down. You don't really know what's happening until afterwards. And when you start putting it back together, that's what adds that extra layer. And even honestly, the Alien franchise has never had to go much further in what a face hugger is doing. Like I think in aliens, you do see the proboscis kind of moving around and you, you now see, Oh, when it's on your face, it's putting itself down inside you in that. It's going down there. (laughs) But again, that's James Cameron being like, I'm going to fucking go for it. And, uh, and God bless bless that man. Um, but, uh, but it's fast. And I think that's the, that's the big thing I want to say is in, um, in evil dead two, uh, these scenes are faster in the yep. 2013 remake. It is a faster moment. And because of that, because it doesn't linger on it, it doesn't allow you to have a moment between horror and the, the absurdity of it, or even the titillation of it in the way that this version does. I forgot. I was watching this scene. I forgot how long it was because yeah. it starts with, you know, she gets scratched. And then it starts tearing off her clothes in a very purposeful way. And then it's wrapping her wrists and then it's wrapping her ankles. It's like, this is, this is going on a while. Like, okay. And then it gets, it cups the breasts. It spreads the light. Like it's, 
it's a lot. And I think if it had mm-hmm. been moments like grabs her wrist, slams her against a wall, and then you just see the vines coming, maybe wrapping around her leg, and then it cuts to a scream, you could put the pieces together and it would still have that, I know what happened next. There's there's no question yeah. of what happened next, but we don't we didn't show it. We left yep. that horror in your imagination. And I think Evil Dead's big thing is we show shit. We show you things. Um, but I think that would have been a moment improved by pulling away. And the last thing I would say is I, I, I absolutely agree that self-reflection and uh, and also from the audience side, from society side, the path to accepting an apology is so important. Because, again, as artists, our job is to explore. Our job is to try things. I don't think our job is to, I, I think as even Sam Raimi said, my job isn't to offend. My job is to shock. My job yep. is to, I want the audience to feel something crazy and then know that they're safe. Cause that's what horror is. Horror is a roller coaster. It's supposed to make you feel like, Oh my God, I'm falling. No, I'm not. I'm okay. That's what yep. horror movies are. And, and I think that's why I love them so much because you walk out of a good horror movie, sweaty, like you feel, yeah. oh, wow, that was a ride. And that's, that's <laughs> yeah. what a good horror movie should do. But uh, to, to come back to like the idea, like I think that there are a lot of artists who misunderstand. It's not to offend. You're, you're not like, if I'm not offending somebody, I'm not doing my job. It's like, well, that's not your job, yeah. though. If your job is to offend people, that's a weird job. How are you making money? If your job is, I want to shock people and scare them. So sometimes if somebody says, well, that didn't scare me, that just kind of made me angry, then you didn't do your job. Anthony Jeselnik, amazing, amazing comic. He had this uh, a great answer. And he's like, if uh, if somebody sells you that wasn't funny, then it's not that you, you know, you're getting canceled. It's that you're not a good comedian. It should mm. be funny. Even if they get like, I didn't like that, but I laughed. That's still better. And then you can, and, and Anthony Jeselnik says some horrific things because that's yeah. his shtick. And, and it's so good. If you've ever seen his stand up, like you're going to walk away going, I feel bad about laughing. I laughed at the bad <laughs> things. It feels, it, it tiptoes up to that idea of edgelord and stuff like that. But I think he's so practiced at it that he knows exactly how to deliver a line that is right around, oh, that would have been too much. But he knows where the line is and he gets yeah. just to it. And I think that's, that's the skill. It's, it's okay to push. It's okay to make a mistake and go too far. But when somebody says, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, you stepped on my foot there. The correct answer is, I am sorry I stepped on your foot. I will watch where I'm going better next time. But I'm going to get close to you. Like, that's what you yeah. should do. Don't don't yeah. be afraid when somebody says you made a mistake. Be like, oh, okay, cool. Now I know. And I'm going to do better next time. That's what, mm-hmm. that's what we should all learn is learn to fail. Learn to say sorry. And as a society, learn when someone says sorry to be like, cool. Done. That that issue is now over and let's move forward. Yep. Let's be better together. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said there. I think I I don't think uh it's yeah. I I just it's it's a tearing scene at me. Like I feel it's, it's both hard. sides it's of the conversation. I think it's also you're right, it is an important scene because yeah. because it is That's our first like deadite encounter kind you have little possession that like with her scribbling in the book but that's the first time we see a demon like terrorize someone in this movie i think and i don't think it's out of character of the deadites at all from what we see later in this movie and the franchise as a whole yeah the deadites their whole thing is uh to blaspheme they want to 
betray the norms of of what you want. That I mean, that's part of why there's physical torture. Uh, uh, I mean, especially in the new one, the, the cheese grater, eating glass, like all of these. Oh, yeah. It's just so... Mm, I love those moments so much. When she jumps on the dude, sucks his eyeball out. Incredible. I, I was cackling. But <laughs> okay, that's, that says more about me. Um, but no, in, the, in, in this one, uh, it's something, again, I didn't remember. I thought that it was a more traditional Cabin in the Woods kind of story where the evil doesn't show up until you read the book. And that's not yeah. true. That's, I thought that was – I noticed that as well this time around. The idea is the evil is always here. It wants to be – it's just – it's subdued. It's like a, it's like having a nosy neighbor who just bangs on the walls, and as soon as you mm-hmm. open the door to yell at them, they charge in. And I think that's what yeah. that's what this is. It is the evil is there from from scene one, from frame one. It starts with uh oh, uh, what did he what did he call his his camera rig? The two by four with the camera on it. Oh oh man, what is it? I know exactly Shake, what you're talking cam, about. I think or it's, I it, think so. That so, might be it. So for those of you who don't know, uh. Those shots with the monster vision, with the camera flying through the woods, you'd think, oh, that's a steady cam operator. This is Sam Raimi with like 20 bucks in his pocket. That's not a steady cam. Yep. That's a two by four with a camera strapped to it and then two people running side by side through the woods. And it looks that he used it in Doctor Strange, the same, I think the same camera, like mm-hmm. not the same camera, but the same technique. He put a camera on a two by four because it is something you just can't get from a steady cam these days. It's a very unique shot. And it's the first frame is this monstrous presence going mm-hmm. through the woods. And then we get like the, the car is kind of like giving him trouble. Like uh, the evil's already there. It's already in them. It's just waiting for the moment to get fully unleashed. And I think in Evil Dead 2 and I think really through the franchise, they have kept the idea that no, no, no. Evil is present everywhere. It's just if you let it loose – how much worse can this get? Yeah. And, and that's the idea of like the eighties horror movie. It's always cautionary tales of, Hey, don't, don't mess with the demon book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this movie, it, I, there's almost a part of me that thinks all these characters would have died that night, regardless of if they would have been snooping around the, the attic or whatever, and uh, taking the recording. But, yeah, you see that scene where, first of all, gun safety, everyone. If oh, you find gosh. a gun <laughs> that you don't know, uh, uh, that you don't, you've never seen before, you see shell, a box of shells by it. Hey, don't point it right at your best friend's face. Uh, don't point at anyone's face, for that matter. Don't, uh, don't play with guns. And just then, yeah. Just <laughs> wow, yeah. My goodness, that that shot is very like, oh my god, don't do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I also like for those of you who like didn't watch a lot of horror, horror movies, uh, uh, Matt's one hundred percent right. It was morality plays. Uh, that's why in horror uh, in like the seventies and eighties, kids would like do drugs and have sex and then yep. die because it was supposed to tell you doing those things gets you killed. Um, yep. it's, it's why in, uh, in scream, they talk about the virgin is always the person who lives. It's not, not virgin in the most strict sense. It just means the good person, the, the final girl is the one who is behaving right. And therefore mm-hmm. she gets to live. Although having watched all of her friends get dismembered. So it's a, there's a lot of therapy ahead of you there, but yeah, this, a lot of therapy in the end, but you're, you're alive. Yeah. But this movie's like, no, no, no. The evil's always there. 
it just can get worse. And that's yeah. Sam Raimi being like, it's not a morality play. These are actually all pretty nice people. I mean, Scott's kind of a douche sometimes, but they're all like just out in the weird spooky cabin for no reason. <laughs> yeah. It, it's interesting because this movie plays with a lot of tropes that really didn't exist yet. Like Halloween was only a couple years old when this came out. And here we have, um, like looking back at now, we always, like you said, the idea of the final girl, which is one of the most interesting concepts in horror to me is that, um, just the way the human brain works and why the final girl is a thing is because, women watching the movie relate to her and then men have this like innate uh sense of like wanting to protect her and so they feel threatened when she feels threatened in the movie and so the idea that ash is a a man and he's the final guy as it were and to this day he's one of i mean he's the only final guy in a horror that i can even think of or name Mm-hmm. McCready and the thing, I guess I'll mm-hmm. throw him in there too. But the thing is different because there's not a single woman in that movie. So the, the fact that it plays with that and you still can relate to Ash and like fear for him. And just before this even became a real thing, I guess like uh Halloween was already out. Texas chainsaw Friday 13th had just come out. Jason wasn't even really a thing yet. Uh, it, it, it's just interesting to look at the tropes that this played around. Like you said, they didn't do anything particularly wrong. Evil was already there. It wasn't like they were all they were all having sex and doing drugs and partying late at night, and that's why they got killed. They, do they ever say why they're going to that cabin? Are they just hanging out? <laughs> just, just hanging out. They're just having a good time. They're having a good time. It's yeah. it's just two couples and then Ash's sister, you know, like you do. Well, actually, to be fair, like I remember I went on a, a South Padre trip with my sister and her friends and I was kind of like the fifth wheel in it. But it was still like we're all just hanging out at the beach. We're going to we're going to be drinking. It's going to be a fun time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this was just college age kids going to a cabin, you know, like you do. Yeah. To be fair, and, and if you live in New soon- England, you absolutely would go to a cabin because yeah. <laughs> like, I'll see what you have to do. How quickly in that scenario were you locked in the cellar banging and trying to get out? Oh, I would have been possessed pretty quick. I'm I'm a hundred percent sure that the, the evil would come for me just because I got enough craziness going on in my head that it'd be like, oh wow, this is like a this is like a two bedroom no, apartment. I should be ta- yeah. I should just stay here. I don't even need the book. It's the appetizer. <laughs> like it is but, uh, and then I think um to to touch on Ash, Ash is an iconic character, not just yeah. not just for the franchise, but in horror in general. Ash has become bigger than uh, than his origins, and I think that that's something very few creators can say that they've done. Like, how many people can say they put a name on the map? When you hear Ripley, you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you hear, uh, uh, I mean, John Connor. You know, if you hear, uh, uh, but there's, uh, uh, oh, what was what was Naomi Campbell's character's name? Sydney. You hear Sydney, and you're like, I, I know who these characters are. Or Saw. Like, you know, immediately yeah. it comes to mind. Ash, you know who comes to mind. If you're, like, th- talking in a horror context. And uh, and the other part of it is that it started with Ash as just kind of, you know, a normal person. He's not particularly brave. He's not particularly cowardly. He's just a normal person. He plays this cute game with his girlfriend when he's like, he's got the box and he's pretending to be asleep. It's just a person. And then he survives. 
But, you know, it's kind of like, oh, no, but they're still evil. And then you see how the franchise takes him. And I think Patton Oswalt, the comedian, was the one who said he's basically this bumbling buffoon, buffoon who survives because of his idiocy. And that is such a wonderful character to have created. By the time you get to Army of Darkness, he is legitimately too stupid to be a hero, but that's what makes him a hero. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's the icon. It's that I, I wanted too, to I'm too stubborn to lose. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about what you think of perhaps the flanderization of Ash Williams, where look at him from the first Evil Dead to ash versus evil dead where he is the he's the one-liner like groovy come on give me some sugar baby kind of guy you know do you think there's any instance of that there do you think that they only made him better with age considering how much you see of it in evil dead 2 which to many people is the start of the franchise evil dead 1 is like this amuse-bouche it's this this aperitif it's it's like a little sip of of brandy before you really get to the meal um, but it is it is a horror movie. It is trying to be a normal horror movie. And Evil Dead 2 is a Sam Raimi movie. And at that point, you get all of those tropes. You get him using a chainsaw to cut off his hand because it went bad. Like, it's yeah. so over the top that him kind of leaning into that, I'm a little bit too dumb to know how scared I should be. And the, I think the other part, um, and I'm going to give credit to... I think it was Tom Ryman and David Bell from uh, Gamefully Unemployed who said um, he is too mad at the evil to be scared of it anymore. And I think mm-hmm. that that is, that is what Evil Dead is. It's about horror and evil pushing you to a point where I'm too angry at you to be scared. You made me cut off my hand. I'm going to shotgun your face off. Like, uh, if you watch the 2013 reboot, a lot of it, the reason a lot of people didn't gel with it, it is, it is very strictly horror and grotesque up until the last 10 minutes. And in the last mm-hmm. 10 minutes, uh, I think it was Jane Levy. Uh, they let her from you know Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Uh, they're like, no, no, no. At this point, you you are too angry to be scared of this literal demon haunting you. And And the movie just turned for me right then. I'm like, there's the evil dead I missed. And that's, that's <laughs> yeah. why I still kind of like it. And then the, the newest run, I think to the 2019, 2020 version, Evil Dead Rise, it's it's there right in the moment. That's what people want. They want you to see people, love them, be terrified that they're dying, and then have one person get so mad that they're like, I don't care that you're the literal devil. I'm punching you in the mouth. And yeah. that's, that's what a buffoonish Ash is. He is that character from Evil Dead 2 on. He is too... He is too angry and drunk to be scared of you anymore. But yeah. Ash, Ash versus Evil Dead, the TV series, still had moments where he, I've never seen that before. And you get to have Ash get scared a little bit. And then it's like, glug. All right, let's, let's, <laughs> let's do this. There's a, yeah. there's a, I think it's in season one, uh, with the, the, the demon that they summon. And it's this weird, fleshy, chattering thing that like it. Yeah. It, flickers in and out of existence in yeah and it's the scariest thing i'd ever seen i was like that is that is a truly iconic monster and ash for the first part of that scene is like very frightened of it and then by the end is just talking shit and i'm like yes because he's too angry to be scared right now and that's (laughs) that is something that very few horror icons get to do uh um sydney is scared up until the moment the movie ends uh uh linda hamilton is 
I mean, Linda Hamilton's incredible in Terminator 2, but in Terminator 1, she's terrified up until the moment she defeats the monster. Because for those of you who don't know, Terminator's a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, I know. A lot of people like to... That's, yeah, I don't that's part of the reason the newer ones don't work, is they forgot it's supposed to be a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you want, you want to go Terminator, same kind of scenario as Evil Dead franchise, where the first one's very horror, the second one strikes a perfect balance between, in that case, horror and action, mm-hmm. uh, set horror and comedy, and then the third on just kind of leans on the one. Well, I guess not for Evil Dead, but the third one kind of just leans on the one, and uh, I'd say Army of Darkness is way better than Terminator 3, but... Uh, yeah, yeah it, Army it, of Darkness is when they really leaned into the comedy of it. And I think that's probably mm-hmm. why there wasn't much movement afterwards is because it's it's kind of like, where do we go from here? You know, we've yeah. we've actually created kind of the perfect ending. It's he screwed up so bad that our current timeline is full of demons. We don't really need to explore it. It's great. It, let the audience. Yeah. Honestly, that's one of the things that I love about And we mentioned before, there's so much time between these movies that when there was another evil dead thing, when Ash versus evil dead was announced, I was hungry for it versus now yep. there's like a new star Wars thing that just came out a new, a new TV show. And it's like, but I just saw one. I, I just ate, I just ate guys. I really, I'm not mm-hmm. please no more. I'm, I'm full. I, I saw Andor and it was like, it was, mm, it was exactly what I wanted to eat. So now you're giving me more like guys, I, I can't eat any more star Wars. <laughs> And they're like, no, 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 we're going to do another series with Jess Ray. And I'm like, she had three movies, dude. Luke Skywalker yep. had three movies and then 30 years before we got back to it. Like, it's okay to take a break and work on something new. Even yeah. even, yeah. even uh, uh, George Lucas left after three movies and took, was it 20 years before he came back to it? It's okay to no. take a minute. <laughs> Don't, things don't need to be out every year. If it's Halloween, yeah. it doesn't have to be Saw. You know, we can just have Halloween. We, we can. Yeah, and, and also, but, like, if you create a horror icon, like, I, I, Megan was like, it was fine. There were parts of it that I'm like, yeah, this this movie knows what it wants to be. And then there were parts exactly. where like, oh, it's, it's not quite there. It could be better. So I really want them to, with all of these new characters that they've invented, you know, Baba Duke and, and the It Follows thing, I want to have another horror mashup like we used to get in the, the 80s and 90s. Where you take these iconic horror characters and just again the, this exact opposite of what I said before, but mash the, ma- the action figures together. <laughs> yeah, get the toys, mash them together because it's it. so fun. Like what? Uh, uh, what was it? Freddy? No, 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 no. Uh, um, Friday the Thirteenth Six. I'm gonna say where you have uh, Jason goes to hell, and it's mm-hmm. at the very end of the movie. Nobody knew this oh, was yeah. gonna happen. At the very end of the movie, the mask uh, falls on the ground. And then Freddy's hand, Freddy Krueger, who has not at all been mentioned in this series, Freddy Krueger's gloved hand comes up, grabs the mask, drags it down to hell. And that's all that, that's what audiences got. And they didn't know what the hell there was. There was no internet for you to conspire about what this could mean. You were just like, cool, that's, that's just canon now. Freddy Krueger is in hell and is able to drag Jason down to him. Yeah. Perfect. It's a crazy, awful movie. Crazy ending. Yes, no, 100% terrible. But that's the thing. (laughs) Horror, horror has the benefit that it can be really bad and you'll still it's it's candy corn it doesn't matter i'm just i kind of want to eat it and i'm going to sit here and watch i will watch almost any horror movie just to be like all right let's see what you got oh you didn't have anything but thanks for being here yep (laughs) and that's okay it's again any horror directors it's okay to make a bad movie like you're still loved you're still making something that's gonna it's gonna tickle a couple people the right way and that's great 
Um, and I know like sometimes we'll talk a little trash about some of the movies we've seen, but it's, it is still for any of you out there who are thinking about making a movie, understand it's impossible. It's impossible to make a movie. The fact that you do is a miracle and you should always be proud of yourself when you do. So mm-hmm. don't, don't worry I, if it's not for everybody. That. Yep. The fact that any movie gets made is a miracle. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Think- and if you've done it, you should be extremely proud, regardless of the quality, because you made something. And I, at the end of the day, that's all you had to do. I used to run a uh, a, a YouTube channel where I would review. I, I called them B movies, but they were really just low budget movies. They weren't traditionally mm-hmm. B movies. And um, I, I would be pretty harsh in some of my reviews because that's how you got views in the Internet. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day I reviewed a movie and one of the actors commented on my video and he's like, we worked oh. really hard on this, dude. Like, I, I know it didn't work for you, but like, we were really hard and you're kind of being like just purposefully obtuse about some stuff. And I thought, oh, I'm going to troll him. I'm going to be this young it kid, blah, blah, blah. And I look back, <laughs> I look back on that and I regret that interaction because to be fair, I have made bad movies. I have, I have been the director, the writer and the actor in very bad movies. And, um, I did put all, everything I could into those moments and it just didn't work for me. That's okay. Nope. And I, I wish I'd had those experiences, but more than that, I wish I'd had the empathy to understand that that's where everyone comes from. Even Uva Bull, who makes, let's be honest, some pretty bad movies. Uh, he doesn't do it because like he likes making trash. It's because he's making his vision and also he's getting huge grants from Germany. So he's making a lot of money, but he's making his vision. He's getting to work with people that are probably people he likes that he has fun with. It's Okay. If what art you make isn't for anybody but you, uh, so yeah. long as you're not hurting anybody, you're doing good. I, I agree, one hundred percent agree. It's just, yeah, like like it's so incredible that anything gets made in the industry. It takes so many hands, and and like you said, uh, that actor <laughs> that's so funny messaged you and was yeah. like, "Hey, don't be a dick." <laughs> yeah, and honestly, like. I, I met an actor from a movie I reviewed once. Uh, I, I When I first moved out to Los Angeles, I hosted Red Carpets because, of course, why not? And um, and I worked for a company that never paid me. And I, I hosted Red Carpet and I'm talking to this guy and he's like, uh, you look familiar. And I'm like, I shouldn't. I am a nobody, but it's so nice to meet you. And then afterwards, I realized, oh, Oh, I did one of his movies and he probably saw uh, he probably saw the video because the review, yeah. at the time I had a pretty decent sized channel. And uh, I uh, I thankfully I look back at that video and I'm like, oh, I didn't see anything terrible. And I think I actually said he was a good actor in it. Uh, but it was also, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you don't know what people see the stuff you put out there. You don't know what people read the things you write. So also keep that in mind. Don't let it paralyze you, but keep in mind trolling and being extra like edgelord it can bite you uh Mm -hmm. so maybe maybe approach things from a different angle put a little bit more positivity into the world and i think you're going to be happier with what you get out of it yeah and and that's one of the reasons why when i met sam raimi when uh it was probably the last thing i said to him i just i just quickly slid in the comment of like i love spider-man 3 because i know he gets so much hate for that movie and I just need him. I need him to know that I love that movie. And um, just the smile on his face when I said that, it just seemed like a genuine, I needed to hear that type of thing. And, and here's the thing. Like, like we are so inundated with superhero movies that it honestly was a, a 
barren wasteland when the first Spider-Man came out. And yes, Blade, Blade was incredible. Blade was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's Blade 2, weird, weird in a way that like was honestly off-putting. And when I watch it nowadays, I'm like, God, Guillermo's a brilliant director. Like the the concepts he came up with are unbelievable. Even Blade 3, as weird as it is, I'm like, I still love seeing it though. I love seeing all mm-hmm. these characters have fun with it. Um, but then Raimi's Spider-Man. And again, this isn't this isn't Summer of Sam. This isn't the Raimi cast, but we do have to just mention <laughs> Should be. watch watch Raimi's Spider-Man immediately after watching any of the Evil Dead movies. Uh, that that he directed, I should be very specific. Uh, and you're going to see shots that he learned how to do in the middle of the woods with Bruce Campbell that he translates yep. to the Green Goblin hunting Spider-Man and bringing those horror, like, obviously, the Doc Ock surgery scene. It is one of the most incredible bits of short-form horror in a superhero movie. It's It's iconic. It's terrifying and it also is super important to the character it shows you how dangerous doc ock is in an instant Mm -hmm. you know this is a villain you know that this is a threat and it's it shocks you because the scenes before and after are hey it's it's peter parker he's dancing he's having a good time oh my god yeah it's it's incredible and i mean that's something sam raimi can do if you watch the new doctor strange uh wanda trapped in mirrors and finding her way out in the most disturbing way possible. That's horror. That's horror used in a non-horror film. And that, when you know that Sam Raimi has that capability, start looking at other horror directors that get the director of Aquaman, uh, uh, James, James one, James one horror director, watch Aquaman and look at the horror shots. Aquaman as a whole, like, yeah, there's it's DCU. There's some messiness, but honestly, there's also some brilliant direction. There's some. There's Willem Dafoe, and Willem Dafoe is the best always. Obviously. So look at the what horror directors can do when you let them do horror stuff in the thing. I think that's the biggest. Le- if I had the chance to talk to Kevin Feige, I'd be like, "Hey, let your directors do what they're best at, because having them just fill the role to get the movie out—that's content. Having them mm-hmm. tell a story and use the skills that they've spent." a lifetime honing to scare the crap out of an audience for one scene in a superhero movie. That's art. And that's the difference. Yep. I, yeah. And that's the thing that I, I think Dr. Strange two supremely underrated. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because everyone just had, they wanted it to be a cameo fest in when it wasn't that they got, cause I remember seeing all the tweets are like, Hugh Jackman was spotted near the set. Is yeah. Wolverine going to be in it? And this ghost ride, Nicholas Cage going to be in Toby Maguire and all this. And, but what that movie is, it feels like a Sam Raimi movie. Like, yes. and that's the thing that so many Marvel movies are m- missing. Like what does quantum mania feel like? I don't know a bad episode of Rick and Morty. And then you look and you see that, uh, yeah, Rick and Morty writers wrote that. And it's like, sure, your DNA is in it, but uh, like, it doesn't feel like a, like an art piece that the director really puts into it. Like, um, Avengers say what you want about Joss Whedon as a human. That feels like a Joss Whedon movie. It like that movie feels Joss Whedon. And, 
same with Multiverse of Madness. I think that's just something like, what does Captain Marvel feel like? It just feels like a like a Sears commercial. I, I was, but Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, it puts some like punch back into the MCU that I feel like only James Gunn has been doing really recently. What I would say, and I absolutely agree. I think that um, if you look at if you look at the first Avengers, there's there's a lot of stuff. Again, there's been books written about all of this. There's been a a, a YouTube video. Movie Bob? It's been a while since I saw it, but it was a, uh, is the Avengers actually that good? I think is the title. And it looks mm-hmm. at it and goes, yes. And here's why. And it explores not just the the storytelling structure that enables it to be so good and how you tie it all of these different movies together. But part of it is that the previous movies all had a vision. Iron Man was Favreau and uh, uh, Thor was Branagh. Uh, uh, and uh, I can't remember who directed the first Captain America, but the first Captain oh, America has a point of view. And honestly, mm-hmm. that's still one of the best movies from the MCU, the, the first Captain America. But the thing is, you had to tie all of these kind of different voices together. And Joss Whedon had a lot of experience uh, putting a lot of voices together. He is a very good ensemble creator. Um, mm-hmm. Again, that is the separating the art from the artist kind of a thing. Because, yes, as a person, huge problems. But the art created by him does last. You do have to kind yep. of keep both things together. And there are, there are some artists that I just uh, – I will not consume what they have created because they've become too damaging to people. Or because yeah. because what they did – not personally to me, but how they – how their uh, uh, actions – have affected my perception of them means that I don't want to support them by supporting their art, which is frustrating. There's, there's a new John wick TV show and Mel Gibson's in it. So I can't, I have to just, (laughs) I have to live by my principles and be like, it's the part of John wick. I will never know what happens. I'll read the Wikipedia page one day, but with, uh, with, with (laughs) the uh, Wikipedia, Dr. Strange. I think the biggest thing, if you look at Captain Marvel versus Dr. Strange, I would say, 80% 80% of Captain Marvel is talking about other stuff. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. w- when you ask, why was this made? It was made to let you know other movies are coming out. And then yeah. when you look at Doctor Strange and you ask, why is it made? 80% of Doctor Strange is about the story of Doctor Strange. It's about, yeah. it's about the choice to pursue power over humanity. It's about what are you willing to give up for other people? your own personal goals, your own personal happiness. How are you willing to support those who you're not going to get the journey with them that you want, but you can still see them succeed and you should take joy from that. There's a lot of really important character moments. And then there's also, hey, I've got another Avengers coming out. Tune in next time on the MCU show. And so that's the thing where it is a balance, but you do still get moments where you're like, no, no, no. This is a director telling a story. This is a, a this is a writer who told a story. That's that's where you get to actually see something that's worth a hundred million dollars. Like that's that's yeah. actually worth it. And it's a shame to me that Doctor Strange Two is seen as such a you know that that it's a kind of a forgettable film to a lot of audiences. When to me it is that sleeper hit. There's moments in it that I will never forget. A, a cape of dead spirit yes. arms. I'm gonna remember that for the rest of my life. That was an awesome shot. So yep. Uh, I think that what would make the MCU return to the glory that it had roughly around, you know, Endgame is let the director tell something. James Gunn, I think mm-hmm. you mentioned James Gunn's perfect example because James Gunn's telling the story of a found family 
and how that's not easy and how sometimes, you know, the journey we take along the way, the people we bring into our lives, it's not just about finding people to support us. You find people who change you. And that's mm-hmm. the story James told. And it's, it's amazing. It's one of the best trilogies out of a sea of trilogies. And I think that that's, yeah. a, that's an incredible achievement in the chaos of the MCU to be able to tell actual interpersonal stories that also involve a living tree and a raccoon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's just one of the strong points of Sam Raimi is he's able to, when you're a kid watching the Spider-Man movies, you're like, oh my gosh, the train scene with Doc Ock, that's incredible. But then as an adult, I go back and watch those movies and I like cry like a baby when Peter just tells Aunt May that he was there the night of Uncle Ben's death. And she just simply like pulls her hand away and like walks upstairs. Oh, that scene's incredible. It's so good. It's so good. And it's like he's able to because he grew up a comic book nerd Mm -hmm. and he like he understands the tragedy of Peter Parker and and he just is able to sprinkle in things there that aren't they're not fantastical superhero moments, but they're human moments of Mm -hmm. like you could have had Aunt May blow up on him or. Or just say, like, get out of my house. I never want to talk to you again, young man, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's not taken that way. It's a quiet moment where she just, like, needs to take herself out of the situation. And then later comes back. The next time you see Aunt May, she gives that amazing speech about, like, how there's a hero in all of us and everyone needs a hero. And basically saying, I forgive you. That And it's not like in the MC. Not, Feel bad. I've been trashing on Marvel this whole episode. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a good example. Um, so yeah. uh, you've seen the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. I've seen the first one. So J.J. Abrams famously said he didn't really like Star Trek. So he wanted to make mm. a Star Trek that wasn't Star Trek. Problem is, if you're going to make Star Trek, make Star Trek. It's part of the reason Picard yeah. is doing so well. It's even Lower Decks. Lower Decks is... It started out feeling like it was going to be blasphemy to Star Trek. But the thing is, everybody making that show loves Star Trek. So the in-jokes and the the poking fun, it is done with love. And you can tell, and that's why it yeah. works. Uh, uh, Orville with uh, 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 Seth McFarland's, like it was supposed to be, he wanted to make Star Trek. They said, you don't get the rights. You're the family guy guy. So he made a yeah. whole other show, and it's just Star Trek. And it's it's great. It's really good. I, uh, the first couple episodes are trying to be a different show. And then Seth is like, no, 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 let's just make Star Trek and not tell anybody. And it's, it's <laughs> so, so good when it's like, no, I love the source material. Let me show yes. you how. So J.J. Abrams made three Star Trek movies and he didn't like Star Trek. And you can tell. And I mean, I, Simon Pegg wrote really good scripts. The cast is great. I love them all. But you can tell the people who are behind it didn't like what Star Trek was trying to tell. And that's not going to give you any good stories. Sam Raimi loves Spider-Man. And so even though he did change some things, instead of, you know, building, uh, uh, you know, the spider web web shooters, he just hasn't organically because it was just, it was going to be easier. It's going to be faster to tell the story that way. Um, The, the little bits and moments and the character choices, it's not quite from the comics, but it's all there. And the, the character is there and the, the humanity is there, even in the midst of all of this other stuff. And I think one of the things that he got right about Spider-Man that honestly no other Spider-Man has really done until the very end of No Way Home, Spider-Man's supposed to be broke. 
Spider-Man's yeah. supposed to be up against the wall every moment of his life because it's hard to be Peter Parker and Spider-Man. There is always you have to do one or the other. And that's what makes his story. Yep. That's why Spider-Man to me is my favorite superhero is because he has to make choices between things. He can't do it all. He's not the Flash who can be in 19 places at once because he's so fast. He sometimes misses a test because he has to save a woman from a speeding car. He sometimes doesn't pay rent because he's fighting the Green Goblin. These are things that people can relate to. It's you had to make a choice between the thing that you felt you had to do and the thing that you you need to do. And that's, I think that's incredible. And Sam Raimi nailed it. Even in Spider-Man 3, which was beset by studio notes, which was obviously mired in some production issues. Um, and uh, I mean, it has the too many bad guys problem. But even mm-hmm. all, with all of that said, there's still a really human story about, I really just want to ask my girlfriend to marry me. And I don't know how to, I, I, I don't know how to like overcome the problems I've created in my life that are preventing me from the thing I just want to do. Yeah. Yeah. It. Oh man. I could talk about those movies all day. They're just my Summer favorite. They're my absolute coming favorite. 2024. It's going to be incredible. Uh, Make it happen. Patreon tier. <laughs> it's going to be $2,500 per, but don't worry. It's going to be worth it. Yep. We'll do a and meet you, and greet. You with might get royalties on great age of sale. If you promote, uh, that's all I'm going to say. I mean, you all might, you might. We, we, legally we said might. <laughs> might. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. Wow. oh man. And that's the movie. That's uh, the Adam, game. you won the IMDb game. So you get Ooh. to give your final thoughts and rating on the <sighs> Evil Dead first. Okay. So oh man, hashtag cancel Adam has gone throughout this whole episode. So <laughs> here's the thing. I think this movie is amazing. I love it. I love it so much, but I love it in the same way that I, as I've said, I love candy corn. Uh, I know it's not good for me. And in this case, I know this movie's not good in a lot of ways. Um, it's it not it's not good in the fact that it does feel like it's a director's debut and they're going to learn so much and they're going to be so much better in the next one. And that's not to say it's not a good movie at times. There are scenes in this movie that have defined horror. There are shots in this movie where, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, Tom Filo, the, the, the cinematographer, he, he invented a camera technique. He... Uh, he pioneered use of uh, uh, he or not pioneered he mastered Kubrickian techniques of getting horror shots that other than Stanley Kubrick other directors can't seem to nail. They they would play with perspective and they would play with madness. Uh, but on the other end of it, there's a lot of continuity errors. The script could use another pass, and and Bruce Campbell's character was kind of just like there, like they didn't have the big the big arc for him that they do in Evil Dead 2. So the thing that I see Evil Dead as is I love this because of what it created. I think this movie has to be in the Hall of Fame uh, because without it, you don't get Evil Dead 2. Without it, you don't get Spider-Man. Without it, you don't get Doctor Strange. You don't get Quick of the Dead. Without it, you don't get Sam Raimi or Bruce Campbell. This movie is important and it's something we can always learn from. But there are there are shots in it, there are scenes in it, there are things in it that feel very, you know, unnecessary these days. Uh, but overall, I would say my full rating on this is still going to be a 7 out of 10 because to me, it still carries itself through and there are no bad evil deads. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, my final thoughts on rating. I agree with just about everything you said there. I think this movie is... 
I respect it more than I like it, I would say. I really just, I see the vision, and I really just 100% support Sam Raimi and what he did with this. And, like, how you were saying, like, you see Evil Dead 2, and that is basically Evil Dead remake, but he fixed his mistakes, he made everything better, and it's... In that way, I think that is a near-perfect film. And not many directors get the chance to do that. But to get there, he had to make this. And you don't get Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, Spider-Man, Darkman, uh, Doc Strange, anything. Uh, the Gift, underrated movie. Underrated Sam Raimi oh, movie. Yes. Oh, watch, my God. The, watch The Gift if you haven't. Give it our shot. I think it uh, holds up. But, yeah, I... I think the I I did forget to mention the uh, claymation towards the end. Yes, I think it's very very unique, but it's not my favorite. But it's, but <laughs> it's campy. Like it's again, it's, it it's a money shot and it's a campy shot. But in the sequel, you get the cabin losing its mind around Ash as he loses yes. his mind. Uh, I think if this that's the thing. I look at Evil Dead as the stepping stone to an incredible movie. And I think that yep. you can't have one without the other. And I don't think I don't think I would ever say it's a bad movie. I would just say no. when you have Evil Dead Two, I don't need Evil Dead One as much. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, another thing: these movies have awesome posters. The Evil Dead poster is iconic and it's great. Uh, make more posters like this. The art of poster making has been lost. Uh, bring me back to Evil Dead days. People, the, I, I don't yeah. know what happened that people are like, no, 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 just a bunch of heads, bunch of floating yeah. heads. That's that's enough. That doesn't work. Look at the best posters in history and you'll see why poster art is so important, because if, yeah. if you're the thing today and I think you touched on it a little bit, it's like there's no surprises in in movies or TV anymore because you've got ain't it cool news. You've got BuzzFeed where, hey, Wolverine has been spotted walking next to Deadpool using this telephoto mm-hmm. lens. I'm like, I honestly would have loved to not see that shot until oh, I yeah. saw the movie. I would have loved to not know that, uh, uh, that fantastic four was going to be mentioned or that, that Patrick Stewart was going to make an appearance in Dr. Strange too. I would have loved to be surprised. And movie posters used to be like, I don't know what this is, but that poster is awesome. What does that alien is an egg. And it says in space, no one can hear you scream. Greatest tagline of all time. Figure it out, kiddos. And I'm like, that yep. is perfect. And nowadays, if you go to see like Alien versus Predator, it's an alien, it's a predator punching each other. And it's like, oh, yeah, I get it. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Tease me. Yeah. Come on. And like you were saying, the blockbuster era, how did you find Army of Darkness? You saw that badass poster. That's how you picked out movies as a kid. You would walk through the aisle and you would pick whichever cover, whichever poster looked the coolest. Like, that's how I got into Godzilla movies. Of like, oh, that yeah. is a giant lizard breathing fire. The, that looks awesome. The poster to Independence Day, which was bizarrely called ID-42. Uh, it's just, <laughs> it's a spaceship over a city. And it's like, okay, I get it. It's a, it's a space movie. But none of the marketing showed the cities getting shot. None of them mm. showed the buildings blow up until after the movie had come out. And then they started highlighting yeah. those sequences. And I did. There's no magazines that were telling you this. There was no behind the scenes YouTube videos showing you them building the sets. You did not know that was going to happen. And then you saw it happen and you don't get those moments in, in cinema anymore. It's part of the reason yeah. I think we've lost the connection to cinema 
and to why big those experiences of sitting in the theater and seeing something for the first time with a hundred strangers, like that was incredible. And I, I worry that we're never going to get it again. There's only a few directors who still have the clout to hide things in their movies. Mm-hmm. Um, even Avengers Endgame, I mean, you knew 99% of what was going to happen. Um, yeah. And it's like, it's a Black shame. Black Panther 2 was like coming out the next year. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I wonder how oh, Infinity yeah. I, War, like Black Panther oh, got snapped, how that's going to end up. Sp- yeah, Spider-Man has this incredible line, I don't want to go. And you're like, oh, no, that's, uh, or yeah, it's like, yeah. don't let me go. I'm like, oh, uh, let's see, dusted. They've already greenlit nine more Spider-Man. Yeah. I'm not worried about yeah. Spider-Man. I think the trailer for like Far From Home was out before Event yeah. Game, or Endgame came out or something. So like that's <laughs> the thing where it's like, I really wish... I really wish that studios would trust audiences more. I, w- I want the art of the trailer back. I want the art of the poster back. Mm-hmm. I want I want someone to try to fill the shoes of Don LaFontaine. For those of you who don't know, the movie voice guy. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's the thing that I lament the most about this era of filmmaking, Sam Raimi's era, is uh, we, we lost a lot of the magic. Not, not in terms of what we can do, but of the mystery of it. Of the fact that mm-hmm. I'm going to surprise you with something. And the, the one last thing I'll say about, about Evil Dead 1. So years back, uh, I went on a honeymoon with my wife to Italy. Beautiful place. And we, we saw Michelangelo. Uh, the, Michelangelo's David. Big, big, big David, you know. Yep. One, he's 15 feet tall. It's terrifying. Two, uh, in the hallway leading up to David, there are first drafts of David. Michelangelo would get a block of marble and he would do Iterate on it. Nah, I don't like that. He'd try again. Nah, I don't like that. He'd try again. And as you walk down this hallway, you see the versions of David that could have been. And you you get the sense of him learning every single piece of stone. And remember, how long did it take to chisel that out? To smooth that part? To find the facial features? And then you get to David, and it's magnificent. And you know the journey that took him to get there. So when you see Sam Raimi in doing Spider-Man, doing the... Uh, 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 the Gift, doing Quick and the Dead, doing Doctor Strange 2. Know that it started here with Evil Dead. This is his chunk of marble that he had to chop at and hone and polish and eventually say, not yet. I can do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you heard it here first, folks. Sam Raimi, bear the Michelangelo. That's right. 100 <laughs> Get out of here, Michelangelo. Summer of Sam, baby. Let's go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to I'm going to go with you with the 7 out of 10. I think it like I said I respect it. I'm like a respect level this movie's near a 10. Like this is a guy fresh out of high school who made this with his buddies out in the woods in Tennessee. Like and, and he's a Michigan boy. So I got to love Sam and Bruce. Like I I could drive to their house if I want to. Uh, their old house. So like these guys they're yeah, there's just I feel I've always felt like a little connection with them, just being a younger guy who left high school wanting to make art and just seeing these guys who did it. And I think there that is said for people who don't live in LA or Atlanta or New York or these central kind of media hubs that still want to make art and make movies like this and Sam kind of proved that you can do it and it can be done well. And yeah. So yeah, I'm going even seven out of 10 agreeing with you. 
Uh, Adam, thank you so much for bringing me the Evil Dead. If people want to find you, all the great projects you're involved with in online, where can they do that? You can find me pretty much anywhere at Officer Mancorn. That's Officer M-A-N-K-O-R-N. Uh, I'm on the internets, I'm on the Twitters, I'm on the TikToks, I'm on the, uh, uh, weirdly on Instagram, I'm just my first last name, Adam Kornman, because I don't know, I messed something up when I signed up. Uh, I am also, you can find me, uh, look for The Great Age of Sale on Facebook, on Twitter, on TikTok. We've got videos coming out, we've got our music videos that we've been showing off, and uh, we have raised $17,000. We need a little bit more, and uh, we might, uh, I mean, hopefully by the time you're hearing this, we will have secured our venue which I can't reveal yet because we may not go with them if they say no. Uh, but if we do, my goodness, are y'all in for something? <laughs> That's awesome. The Sistine Chapel, baby. Oh, Great yeah. age of sales. It's all about the masters. I'm like, I grew up with Ninja Turtles, so I'm just like Michelangelo, mm-hmm. Donatello, give me that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know when you saw, you saw Michelangelo, I was like, damn. You really met a celebrity over in Italy. Like, I didn't know he, uh, I thought he was still in New York. Didn't know he uh, moved over there. I offered him but, some pizza and some nunchucks. He was not appeased by it. Is he, is he as nice? He seems like one of those celebrities that's kind of mean in person. Pretty quiet in person, to be honest. I'm almost, really? almost just like a statue, but very, uh, honestly, uh, probably the best celebrity experience I've ever had. Really? Whereas, like, Statue okay. of Liberty, yeah. she's kind of pretentious. Really, okay. Like, really, really loomed over me the entire time. She seems a little like sassy in a way, but kind of like not a fun way, you know. Like she, a, she's got kind a of a real the air up here is crisper kind of a mentality. And, yeah, and yeah. Like she's above. She you. talks a big game about like give me your tired, your poor, but like you can kind of tell give me your tired, your poor, and keep them away from me. I'm in a yeah. penthouse in New York, baby. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> and people can find me online at Hopper2400 on Twitter. Um, and my personal YouTube channel, I think it's just Matthew Dawson now. People are telling me it somehow got changed. Uh, so it's not pure fission anymore. Just look for Matthew Dawson and you'll find my stuff. Um, and you can join the club by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, hitting that bell notification so you'll be notified when new episodes drop every single Monday. Also, we have merch go to redbubble.com buy yourself a dial-up movie club t-shirt hey maybe you want to dress up as your favorite podcast for halloween uh get dial-up movie club t-shirts we got socks we got gym bags i've been hitting the gym more i should get a gym bag and uh promote the brand oh wait people gave me crap because my sister had a grand opening she just opened a uh a dog food store and i'm very proud of her and i wore my sweatshirt dial-up movie club and they're like, oh, Matthew, you should be supporting your sister. Why are you promoting your brand? I said, always promote the brand. People, this is Marketing 101. You know news people are going to be there. I knew the newspapers were going to be there. Of course they're going to take my picture in my Dial-Up Movie Club's hoodie. And people are going to say, what What hoodie is that? What, what brand? What great logo am I seeing with my own eyes right now? And they're going to Google it. And they're going to find this episode. And that's why you always promote the brand uh and leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast it helps immensely also arrow canary episode one just dropped you can go over on mortal verse uh it has its own podcast hub now uh and you may have noticed that all the justice league mortal episodes are gone from dialogue movie club it's over there now uh justice league mortal is over there nightwing year one is over there and now arrow canary has premiered over there so go over there check out all of that and 
as a thank you for getting through the plugs, you make it to the final segment of the podcast, Dial-Up Discussion, where I give Adam one last pointed question hmm. about Evil Dead. Oh. Adam, are you ready to discuss? I am so ready. You get unlimited budget, unlimited creative freedom to greenlight one Evil Dead movie. You can put it in any time era, anything. You got to put Ash in some crazy situation. Where do you want to see Ash go? Oh, man, that is a good one. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's do this. So this is your elevator pitch. I'm Sam Raimi. So, Sam, right now, what you got going on? First of all, uh, Summer of Sam has been going great, if you didn't know uh, the podcast. Well, I've heard. I love Dial-Up Movie Club. Um, and I mean, I, you remember him from the time he told you that Spider-Man 3 was great. So here's the thing. You've had two uh, kind of reboot cools that have come out that have introduced these new iconic characters of Evil Dead. You had Ash versus Evil Dead bringing in Lucy Lawless again, crushing it. What if we now tie everything together using the unreleased alternate ending to Army of Darkness? For those of you who don't know, uh, and Sam, I'm just going to address the audience real quick. Uh, in the alternate ending of Army of Darkness, because he didn't say the words right when he took the potion and went to sleep to wake up back in his own time, he wakes up in the future after the dead uprising has destroyed the earth. I would say we arrive there with our our new with Jane Levy. With uh, I, I apologize, I don't know the actress's name from the, the 2020 Evil Dead Rise. Mm-hmm. And Ash, together, the three of them, three or two scream queens and one scream king, rising up to put right what he failed to prevent. Wow. Uh, first of all, I'm going to green light this right away and give you all the money you want for Great Age of Sale because I hear it's great. That's uh, that's great. Yeah. Um, man, it's tough. To for my answer to do anything more like we we took Manhattan in Evil Dead Rise we got uh we got some New York goodness mm-hmm. finally uh more of that uh, yeah I just want to see Ash back in whatever way possible maybe send him send him to like feudal Japan I want to see him Ooh. like have to replace his hand with like a katana. And he has to just slice up oh, Deadites. Man. Well, honestly, the thing that I would love to see more of, and I think uh, Eagle Dead Rise did a little bit of this with the apartment representing the cabin. I would love to see more like an office building. Like it's a group of yeah. people trapped like at a Christmas party in like a brand new building that they helped build. Like maybe it's like an architecture firm celebrating in the, in the only furnished floor of a building they helped create, but they're trapped inside. There's only really yeah. a couple of floors that are actually furnished. So it's just it's a bunch of scaffolding. It's a bunch of construction equipment. Because here's the thing. The chainsaw, iconic, amazing. But that belongs to Ash. We need mm-hmm. new tools to kill deadites. And there's so many interesting. Like Evil Dead Rise had a wood chipper. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> but there's so many other power tools out there. Like go to Home Depot. Look at them. And imagine killing deadites with them yeah yeah that's it that's the pitch take sam raimi it's me sam raimi again uh take me to home depot just pitch me everything in every aisle how we can make it work and we'll just do that Uh, just skip the whole office building just do evil dead in a home depot just Mm -hmm. do that i want to see every 
IOUs to its fullest oh, extent. Oh, here's your crossover. It's it's Evil Dead meets the Equalizer. Equalized Dead. Perfect. Equal. <laughs> e- yeah. E- oh, man. E- well, Evilized. Equalized Dead. <laughs> Evilized. Yeah, yeah. Just get, we'll, get we'll Washington beating a deadite with a hammer. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Oh, man. Well, thank you for tuning into Dial-Up Discussion, and thank you for tuning into another episode of Dial-Up Movie Club. And remember, kill her if you can, lover boy. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.